0: or any way that I can make this a better experience for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. I'm here today with James Lindsay and Jay Dyer. They are two, I believe, heroes in this information war. They are authors. I have some of their books right here. And uh, I had this idea like literally a year ago, so I'm super excited to bring them both together to have this conversation. How are you both doing today?
1: I'm I'm all right. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little run down like usual, but um, oh, no. I'm pretty good. Pretty good. It's how it goes.
0: <laughs> oh no! All right. How are you doing, Jay?
2: <laughs> I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Uh, glad to be here with James as well and you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a good conversation.
0: Awesome, awesome. So. As a, you know, I maybe both of you can each do a little bit of a more in-depth, you know, kind of introduction of yourselves. My audience, I think, is pretty familiar with both of you, but yeah. So.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I just kind of got into looking at all of what we might broadly call woke literature, which then bleeds into this kind of, I don't know, world economic forum, globalist agenda literature Uh, through a project I did a number of years ago in 2017 and 18 called the Grievance Studies Affair where we tried to expose academia by getting fake papers published to show that there's a massive political corruption going on there and ever since I've just dived deeper and deeper and deeper into their literature as I like to tell people um, my superpower is that I read their books and believe them. Uh, And that's really all it comes down to is can you decode their language and understand what they've said and then believe what it actually says in black and white right in front of you? And so
0: that's not an easy. (laughs) The
1: the decoding part with the older literature is harder. Um, They're actually quite plain right now. Uh, of course, when you read something like a document from the World Economic Forum, there is a lot of reading between the lines, but they get occasionally frustrated, especially in their longer uh, white papers or whatever, that start exceeding 30 or 40 pages. And they always end up having a paragraph or two where they just kind of like frustratedly blurt out what they're talking about. Um, and so you have to kind of keep your eyes open for that and understand what the the, the context in which they're writing. But they're they've at least become a lot plainer. Uh, you know, reading something like Lukacs from the 1920s is this kind of a nightmare experience to try to figure out what in the world he's talking about. But then to read Klaus Schwab is just tedious because it's just the same kind of corporate pl- pablum over and over again. But so who I am is I am somebody who reads this stuff and then tells people about it. That's more or less it. I, I read it all the time. I have an extensive um, knowledge of their literature, spanning a number of fields and. I I tell people what they mean by what they say and to try to convince people to believe them when they say what they say.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And you do a really good job of it. And Jay.
2: Well, there's some overlap there. I'm glad to be introduced to James's work. Um, I didn't realize that he was involved in the, um, producing, uh, uh, getting those published, those those kind of ridiculous papers. And I remember talking about that on some podcasts some years back, so that's that's really awesome. <laughs> I appreciate you did that, dude, that's awesome. Um, yeah, in terms of overlap, I do some of the, the same stuff. Apparently, um, I read a lot of the elite books and uh, kind of cover them in a bite-sized way for the, the general audience out there. Uh, we've been doing that for about four or five years, um, host of the fourth hour of uh, Lord Voldemort, AKA Al Jones's show. Um, and we, we usually lecture on one of those books uh, each week when I do that show. So on top of that, I wrote two books on Hollywood, pop culture, um, how they engage in mind control, brainwashing, propaganda through film, uh, through the music industry, through, through pop culture, basically. Um, I also do a lot of debates with people from various religious traditions. And I think we've done, uh, I don't know, we did a season of a TV show based on the first book. And uh, yeah, so that's what I do is is what I overlap with you. I also do ridiculous so called comedy as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're both very funny. Um, so I thought this great be great because you do have some you know unique perspectives and views, but there's a lot of overlap here. And so some of the things that I you know I was saying that one of the topics I really wanted to kind of maybe dive into, but you know as everyone knows we'll we'll go wherever this organically goes. But I think that. It's really important for people to understand kind of when when you first start looking at this, it all looks very obscure. It's like, how did we get here? You know? <laughs> and and it, it feels like it's all happening so quickly. And then when you start diving in, you realize that, you know, that's really not true. This has been the 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 way for, for where we are today has been paved for so long. And both of you have really alluded to a lot of the kind of religious roots of a lot of the philosophical and uh, ideological uh, perspectives that are being and agendas that are being put forth today. So the, you know, we know that they're really trying to push this transhuman agenda. That seems to be kind of the, you know, the end road of where they want us to be kind of, you know, like Kurzweil, the singularity is near, Uh, you know, we're all going to be uploaded, even though we don't have consciousness or souls, but our souls and consciousness will be uploaded to the high fork mind, and uh, then they will control us with this uh, AI technocratic fascist uh, takeover. So I wanted to get your perspectives kind of on, firstly, do you think that Gnosticism plays a role in this? Do you think that Gnosticism paved the way for us to even have a transhuman agenda? And then if so, how? And uh, I don't know if any who wants to start with that. I mean,
1: I would say that the answer that's definitely yes, but I almost think we need to take a step further back. I mean, I think among us, we're aware that there's a transhuman agenda, but I don't think most people have the slightest idea, <laughs> or okay, even have ever yeah. heard of what transhumanism is. And so I'd like to actually, before we talk about Gnosticism, I'd like to start with something Klaus Schwab has remarked on about the fourth industrial revolution. So if you don't know who Klaus Schwab is, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, I know you two both would know who he is. Um, So he is the the, um, Emperor Palpatine or James Bond villain or whatever you want to call it of our current era. Uh, he was delivered into that role straight out of central casting. Once you look at him and realize he wears spacesuits and things. Um, but he actually is talking about, and his his vision has been for f- over 50 years, this phenomenon that he's referring to as the fourth industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. So he says there have been three previously. There's the one that we usually think of as the industrial revolution. And then there's the kind of... Um, this shift into a, uh, the second industrial revolution is where we, we electrified, and the third industrial revolution. So the first one is, ma- is machines, then there's electricity. Then there's computers. That's the third industrial revolution. And the fourth industrial revolution is really this switch into a universally digital world. And so what he actually refers to is he says that the difference between the first three industrial revolutions and the fourth industrial revolution is the first three industrial revolutions changed the nature of how we worked? It changes the the nature of the world around us. But the fourth industrial revolution changes you. The transformation goes inside of you uh, as opposed to, so you become the thing that changes, not the world around you as a result of this digitization. And so when we start talking about transhumanism, which is to surpass the normal limitations of human uh, as kind of a, You know, article of faith or or aspiration, you see this tucked in this fourth industrial revolution rhetoric. And where does he put this? He says, Well, when we have the internet as a result of digitization, and then we all talk now about this internet of things your laptop is connected to the internet, your devices are connected to the internet, but maybe your toaster is connected to the internet now too. Maybe your tea kettle, maybe, you know, various normal devices around your house. Maybe you have. Siri or Alexa, whom you can't even name without somebody's in the listening audiences, there's in their living room will spout off the second this happens. Uh, These kind of wearable technology devices, people have their apps that track their heart rate, that have this watch that they wear wearable technologies. These are all creeping further and further and further. Your washing machine might be connected to the internet, for example. Uh, Elon Musk was just talking about how with the heat waves or whatever, with the summer heat this year, that there's some kind of a catastrophe mode built into Tesla cars. And he's not talking about you needing to go buy a new model of Tesla, he's talking about in the next software update, your Tesla will behave differently. Okay. So your car is connected to the internet and to GPS and to virtually everything else. But then when you start transitioning into this level of wearable tech, and it could be implantable tech as well, but it doesn't necessarily even have to be, it could be just wearable tech. You start talking about and what Klaus talks about is an internet of bodies. Yep. So now you're wearing watches and you're wearing devices that monitor your body temperature, your heart rate. I have a friend I was talking to recently who has this fitness tracking ring that she wears. Tracks her all kinds of statistics that are super useful for somebody who's trying to be fit and healthy. And as a uh, fertile childbearing age woman, it also can pinpoint within like 10 minutes when she ovulated or something just staggering. I have another friend who has a similar device who thought it was very funny at the beginning of the year at New Year's. She sent me that it gave her a summary of the top three reasons she lost sleep last year. And Number two was that she, her watch detected that she was masturbating. And I don't say that to shock. The device was able to figure out that's what she was doing by reading her heart rate, her perspiration rate and other things that, that the watch that she's wearing, the smartwatch she was wearing, uh, you know, can measure. And we have this technology now, John Deere has it in tractors that can, can make a centimeter by centimeter grid of your farmland in terms of its mineral and soil and water content and soil quality and all of this stuff. John Deere owns that data and sells it to futures traders that bet against your farm, by the way, you don't own the data as a farmer generating it. But this internet of bodies and internet of kind of everything, but the internet of bodies is the idea of like step one of transhumanism, we are going to become internet connected to one another through our devices first, it could later become implantable tech, Where I think most people are aware at least that Elon Musk has been screwing around with a technology called Neuralink that's actually supposed to be some kind of a, through various means, implantable um, link between the internet and your brain.
2: Mm-hmm
1: so that your brain is connected to the internet and thus to other people. And you could have, in essence, telepathic communication with one another or all kinds of weird mind control. They, they try to sell some of this technology by saying, well, you don't have to imagine what it's like to win the Super Bowl. We could just download Tom Brady's experience into your brain and you would live it. The smell of the grass, the feel of, of your own, of Tom Brady's physical body grabbing the football and being there in the stadium with 100,000 people screaming you can have that experience and what they don't tell you in the advertisement is that they could also import you into a Chinese Soviet prison where they abuse and torture you without you ever having to leave your house. They don't tell you that part uh, in the the sales pitch as it turns out. But the idea is to go further and further in this direction while also improving medical technology to where not only are there implants, or um, body augmenting devices, glasses that allow you to see things that aren't there, like Pokemon Go, but everything, or contacts, or uh, you know exoskeletons that you could wear that would allow you to run really fast or be really strong or whatever else. Um, not only are you talking about that, but the idea that you actually might live in an increasingly metaverse or augmented reality or entirely digital false reality kind of matrix environment uh, to escape um reality as it is while even having this kind of super longevity technology kind of coming into the picture uh where people might be able i, I was just talking with somebody the other day who is a famous tech entrepreneur whom i won't name and he was saying you know we're currently at the point on my read of the technology to where anybody who is likely to live 15 more years is likely to live 50 more years if the technology is available to everybody because we're going to be able to extend life, telomeres, or whatever else they can manipulate so within 15 years. The technology will be such that you can do treatments that will extend your life by 50 years. And so Um, this reminds me by the way of a thing, my brother is a, is a data scientist. Um, and one of the things he told me about that blew my mind when he was in graduate school was that a lot of times you'll write a computer code to, to figure something out, to model the atmosphere, of Jupiter or something, or to model an F 35 in flight. And, um, it's actually the fastest way to implement your code is to wait 22 months after you write it to put it on the new computer that'll come out in 22 months. Because your computer might take five years to run the code, but the computer that comes out in two years will be able to run it in six months. So you actually will be able to get ahead by waiting a long time for the higher technology because technology is improving so fast. So this same concept applied to longevity uh, is part of this agenda as well. And from what I understand, the, the elites, whose books we have joyfully read and discussed, will probably want to reserve that Technology for themselves because there will be too many useless eaters who can't live for 300 years in a sustainable or 500 years in a sustainable uh, world. And so you have to figure out how to do some deciding who gets to be in the long lived elite. And there have been a number of dystopian novels written about this. I recommend This Perfect Day by Ira Levin, for example, to see a taste of what that looks like. So the transhuman agenda, though, is the idea that we can transform ourselves beyond the basics. Of humanity, it's written all throughout their literature and their ambitions. Um, they don't hide it. You could read, for example, you uh, What is it? Yuval Noah Harari's okay. book. He's kind of the the. He's a historian, but he's like the scientific lapdog of the World Economic Forum. Somehow, he's a futurist, but he's actually a historian. Uh, and he wrote a book called Homo Deus. Uh, that uh, a lot of people a lot of people have heard of his first book, which is *Sapiens*, which was a runaway bestseller. But he wrote a second book called *Homo Deus*, which is man God. It is like God man, right? If Homo Sapiens is wise man, Homo Erectus is erect man, Homo Economicus would be economic man. Homo Deus is God man. And so this is his, so sapiens was his look backwards through history and homo deus is his look forward into history where man actually becomes his gods by remaking himself using technology. So this is a thing on the table. And when we understand what it is and that it's happening, then we can look back and see, yeah, its roots are literally Gnosticism, which is the same Gnosticism written in Genesis three, uh, in terms of being super old.
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, thank you so much for backing up to transhumanism. I, you know, I, I think I take for granted sometimes that some of this stuff seems like it's so glaringly obvious and in our faces today. But yeah, a lot of people are really not versed and not aware. Um, and you did bring up a uh, so to two things, uh, you've all know, Harari and uh, the elites wanting to reserve it for themselves. He actually said that, you know, he was ta- drawing the parallel between Noah's Ark. And he said that there was going to be how that, you know, last time the flood wiped out the masses. But this time, you know, technology will, the advancements and but there will be a scientific arc for the elites and uh, they will become mortal. And uh, yeah. So, and the other thing, when you were talking about uh, the Neuralink, yeah. So, uh, Charles Lieber is partners with, uh, you know, Elon on that Neuralink, and he has the patent on the Neural Lace. And so, when you were saying it doesn't actually have to be a chip, you know, they can do this remote controlled with uh, self assembling nanofibers, and we've seen some evidence of that even in, you know, the current jabs that everybody's getting. Uh, you know, several doctors have done the mysc- microscopy. Uh, assessing what's in you know the ingredients and there's it does seem to be a lot of evidence that they're what look to be these nanofibers that self-assemble into they call it a chip but really it's you know it's the the uh effects of a chip but it's not actually a chip so but yeah so what do you do you have anything you want to add to all of that jay
2: sure i mean i, I like to trace the ideological lineage for these kinds of uh positions so I'm glad that you've mentioned Gnosticism because we can find in the ancient world not just in the early Gnostics but also uh as James said back to Genesis 3 with the idea that you can become a god you can become your own god which is what Satan you know promises to Adam and Eve if, if they would rebel and in the Hellenic world you know western civilization very influenced by of course the Greek philosophers uh Aristotle Plato and others Plato really pioneers this idea of techne, that technology could be the means by which we could master or um, have dominion over the world. And so in the Republic, you get the idea of an idealized city. Uh, it's really the first document that that posits the quantification of all reality, that all of reality, every area of life can be mathematically, uh, geometrically quantified. Plato actually has this uh, section where he talks about that the philosopher king, who's the sort of enlightened despot that would rule uh, the the republic, should go up on a mountain for 30 years and just study math. And the idea is that by studying math, the uh, philosopher king would be closer to the ideal realm. And then when he comes back down the mountain to the republic, to the city, he can impress upon the city the perfect ideal, which comes from Plato's philosophy of the forms or the ideas. So he has this idea that that's a more perfect way to run the world. And as a result he comes up, up with ideas that would later influence the Malthusians ideas like population control ideas like that you know the earth can only sustain a certain number of people if it gets out of balance then uh you know you'll have people running wild and the, the lower class the, the working class which is at the bottom of Plato's pyramid they might overrun the higher classes and so he has a three-tiered uh, system to his republic. The middle, the middle class, by the way, which is totally communistic. So the guardian class in Plato's Republic are purely communistic. And this uh, is a huge influence on the later technocrats of the 20th century. This is a movement that starts in the 1920s as kind of a fringe party associated with socialism. They've been influenced by thinkers like Auguste Compton, uh, uh, individuals who come out of the Enlightenment tradition, influenced by Jacobin philosophy, Illuminist philosophy. Um, from the French Revolution and so they the idea again was let's how do we create a a perfect system so the idea is that nature is broken and through technology we can fix it Uh, they also were influenced by Malthusianism that's Thomas Malthus the Anglican so-called minister out of England in the period of uh, Victorian England who was influenced by Darwinian philosophy social Darwinism the idea being that uh, if we don't drastically reduce the population, he said there would be a population crisis, and he derived this from looking at flies in a jar. So again, pseudoscience is nothing new. It goes back a long time. I'm not saying that there can never be a situation where there's too many people crowded into one city, but the idea that the earth is overpopulated uh, is just simply not true in my view. Um, but the, the elites, especially the British Empire, the Royal Society, they really went for this idea. They went for other philosophical positions like pragmatism, empiricism, sometimes called Anglo-empiricism. And so this really undergirds the whole uh, modern project of the Anglo-American establishment, what Quigley calls the Western Atlantis' power block. So they have an, they do have an ideology. And the ideology combines a lot of previous ideas. Uh, again, not just Plato and Plato's idea of uh, eugenics. Eugenics actually comes out of Plato. But the idea of um, technocratic and 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 ideal models that will run society this is what every communist marxist dictatorship or system has also been influenced by the idea that you can have an ideal system impressed upon the human realm and because humans are seen as basically manifestations of a dialectical material process it should work this is where they get the idea that when it doesn't work it has to be because of the false consciousness of the individuals not going along with the collective and so that leads to the purges. That le- again, we see this in the French Revolution with the Committee for Public Safety, they would just behead, you know, thousands of people who didn't go along with the revolution and the the radical revolutionaries in the French Revolution, the Jacobins, they were complete communists, they believe in total equality, uh, they believe in total uh, sharing of property, women and men, no differences between them. So they, they were really the proto revolutionaries of today's, um, you know, woke revolutionaries. But today's woke revolutionaries are going to the next level where um, we've really seen, I think the the odd logic of this dark logic, I guess you could say, coming to its own uh, self-consistency in the sense that uh, if humans are the problem, then it's humans that need to be overcome. And so we get the idea of a post-human world, post-humanity, and that's really the governing ideology of today's so-called elites to adopt, not just uh, transhumanism, not just um, Malthusianism, not just technocracy, but to take it to the next level and say, okay, let's just get past what it is to be human or what a man even is and go to that next level where we'll have a pseudo immortality that's promised as you said through downloading your mind to a zip drive by the way they say that there's no such thing as a mind so i'm not sure how if consciousness doesn't exist because most of them are are materialists how they're going to download your consciousness into a zip drive Uh, to me that sounds like just a bunch of baloney um and and so a lot of this domain in my view is not so much science as it is science fiction and so a lot of the programming a lot of the um, promotion of this worldview doesn't so much come from philosophers and, and boring old dusty treatises of Plato and Aristotle or Thomas Malthus, it actually comes from science fiction, and so we see a lot of the promoters of this idea in the 20th century, were people like HG Wells, uh, you know, whom we've, we've lectured through uh, many of his books, many of his writings, um, and so, you know, science fiction played a huge role, Hollywood played a huge role in promoting the possibility of these ideas I call it a science fiction Illuminism, right? The idea that um, what you watch in Star Trek is somehow gonna be manifested, right? With this uh, egalitarian uh, Starfleet Federation that's one day gonna come into fruition with the United Nations, right? Representing, it's, it's basically a stand-in for the United Nations. I think, you know, Gene Roddenberry who created that was very much into this sort of globalist agenda and the idea that technology could create this perfectly egalitarian society. And that's out of Marx, right? That's out of Engels and Marx and other socialists who thought that um, there's even uh, writers who go deep into the Marxist tradition to point out that uh, Marx really pioneered this idea of that machines would eventually lead us out of the uh, monopoly capitalists and um, big, big uh, government socialism phase into the utopian phase, right? Because Marx's final stage is utopian freedom or it's a kind of libertarian utopia that marx has at the end of his phases but he did think that the phases required these stages where you would have monopoly capitalism giving way to world socialism and um the big dictator kind of uh, socialism and marxism and then that would give away the state would wither away and he seemed to have thought that uh machines would play a role in this alleviating of the proletariat from having to work there would no longer be a need for workers and what's fascinating about Klaus and his crew is that they've really run with that to say that not just that uh, the, the you know, you you to own nothing or you will be happy, right? Not just that, but also that the, we won't even need the people, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, Harari has said, you know, the useless eaters. he says that most of you, you won't be needed. You won't go into the future. And he's just echoing, as I said, what H.G. Uh, Wells says. It's either in uh, New World Order or in Open Conspiracy. There's a whole section at the end where H.G. Wells says... Uh, by the way the star trek utopia uh, that's coming it's not for all of you guys he even says this he says but you could at least die for it and wouldn't it be noble to die for something rather than nothing <laughs> so so as this arch propagandist right hg wells uh it really sort of spills the beans and he's not alone in that there are plenty of other you know 20th century figures who spill the beans about that um there's another uh, more obscure book that hg wells has called god the invisible king which uh, we did a lecture on that and it's it's really unknown And it's a nonfiction text where HG Wells gives his analysis of religions, and he gives the the religion of the future technocracy. And there's a striking couple of paragraphs where he actually says that he's influenced by Gnosticism, he's influenced by the ancient Gnostic tradition, he says that really uh, Lucifer as a revolutionary figure, as a kind of uh, archetypal rebellious angel uh, figure in at least Christian theology, that figure represents the Promethean man of the future who will overcome not just the here and the now, but will be a kind of figure of the transhumanist future. He doesn't use the word transhumanism. But that's what he's talking about. And people from his circles, like Julian Huxley, Julian, the brother of Aldous, is who cl- coins the term transhumanism. He says the exact same thing. He writes the philosophy of UNESCO, which is one of these famous global elite texts, where he says that um, we just, we'll just throw out uh, depopulation and eugenics and we'll read. We'll, uh, for our purposes, we'll rename it and uh, uh, call it biometrics and right, call it, uh, uh, you know, uh race health and these kinds of things and so this is where we get planned parenthood this is where we get all these rockefeller funded entities that have the same malthusian ideology and again now it's post-human and so there's actually a, a prominent philosopher uh well known in the 20th century named eric vogelin and uh, vogelin really pioneered and 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 put out this idea that the postmodern transhumanist world um influence but that's coming is influenced by Gnosticism because Gnosticism had this idea that the problem with man wasn't something in his will or in his uh, fallen state, but rather man's problem was the world itself, the physical matter itself, metaphysics itself is the problem. And so in order to be freed, man must overcome this world. He must overcome the limitations of the here and the now of time and space, of four dimensions. And if he does that, then he can become a god. And so, uh, again, this, you know, this is, I don't know if, if people in this audience will know about Dr. Vogelin, but in the, in the sphere of philosophy, he's very well known. And, and he really was spot on, you know, several decades ago when he said that Gnosticism is really the root of uh, postmodernism and transhumanism. <laughs> yeah,
1: I agree completely. Um... Foglin is absolutely a crucial read to understand. He was writing that in the 50s, I think, primarily. I actually held up while you were talking. I have a copy of his Science, Politics, and Gnosticism literally by my left hand right here. (laughs) Um, It's a very important read. Uh, But so... What you have then, I, I like your description of Gnosticism is this idea that the world itself is the problem. And in fact, it's a prison. If you read Heidegger, he talks about the Gevorphin of being that you've been flung. There's a flungness to being You've been flung into the world. You didn't ask to be in the world. You didn't ask to be born in a man's body. You didn't ask to be born in a woman's body. You've been flung into that. And then the belief ultimately, as it comes along into the modern era, starting with you since you talk about the French Revolution, starting with Jean Jacques Rousseau, who is kind of the philosophical architect of that, who was also like overwhelmingly a Gnostic. His most famous sentence probably is just a one sentence expression of Gnosticism man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. And his belief was that the social contract that we have is what's imprisoning us in the world, it's the social construction of. Uh, Of of the the human beings have imposed upon each other and themselves that actually imprisons us in the world, that limits us, limits our range of imagination and subjective uh, vision from which we are able to be creative in the world and maybe escape those chains. And so he cooks up this whole philosophy about, you know, that we'll have this idea of kind of, it's this this philosophy of negation, this idea that we're going to um, give away some of our liberties willingly in order to increase overall liberty. And that's the idea, he says, that liberty is maximized when we willingly give away to the collective the correct amount of our own liberties uh, so that everything is the well-oiled Star Trek machine if we kind of inject a little Roddenberry into Rousseau. And so Rousseau is kind of this Gnostic character in the 1760s writing these ideas down. His ideas get taken up by the Jacobins, the Jacobins, then kill everybody, basically, that doesn't go along. They're the first kind of real communists. But his whole program of kind of taking this this thing and then taking a negative aspect of that thing and then mixing them together. So your freedoms, but the willing uh, abnegation of your freedoms or uh, the the civilized man in the city and the savage in the jungle. if you could just figure out how to to get you know the city, puts all these impositions on you. You have to act right. You have to follow the laws. You have to show social decorum. You have to be reasonable. He complained a lot about that. I think it was a lover's spat with David Hume, to be honest with you, but I'm not positive. Um, But he complained a lot about the the requirement of rationality. If you could just release the emotion and the imagination, the instinctual nature he perceived by misreading or reading his own ideas, his own romantic ideas, into um, the colonial pieces that were being sent back from priests and other colonists describing their experiences in the Caribbean or in Africa or, or in South Asia, he's, he's reading these things and he's, he's imposing on them this idea, oh, these people live in a much more free world than us. And if you could somehow mix them together to produce what he called savages made to inhabit cities, then you could have this kind of ideal world. We could break free of the chains of society and we could start to live in a free world. And this idea gets brought through a German philosopher who falls in love with it, Schiller, he, gets, he translates it into German, and he calls it, he calls this process Aufheben, the, the idea of keeping and abolishing at the same time so that you can raise up to a higher level. You keep the essence, but you get rid of the particulars so that you raise it up to a higher level of understanding, this kind of magical, weird German word. And he presents it to one of his students, Georg Hegel, who then creates the dialectical religion that I refer to as scientific Gnosticism. I think that uh, Hegel was more of an alchemist, he was much more, if you want to talk about mystery religions, he was much more of a hermeticist than he was a Gnostic, but he imported this Gnostic view of Rousseau, and then Marx was way more of a Gnostic. He was trapped in a world where people have to pay bills. Oh no. People have to buy stuff with money. They have to go earn money. They have to do all this crap they don't want to do. He even says in the economic and philosophic manuscripts, he writes in 1844, that even a hungry belly, this is in the first manuscript, even a hungry belly, if you work for any reason, somebody else's work, somebody else compels you to work because you need to make money or whatever, or even because your belly is hungry, it's not true work. It's not the true creative work of a free, liberated man who would never be hungry, who would never suffer disease, basically an elf at a Lord of the Rings or something, and totally liberated from the confines of being a man. He said, even if you're hungry and work to satisfy your hunger, then you're imprisoned by this. Because Marx wanted to be a freeloader. And so he creates a whole economic theory about how the whole world can let him be a freeloader. And um, if you don't research give him that.
0: Frodo, He's trapped in a prison. Mr.
2: Frodo, they're taking yeah. the, they're taking the means of production to the Lord or Mr. Frodo.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and now the means of production are called ESG and it's the one ring, and the big corporations have been turned into Nazgul. And they're I mean, we could do the whole thing in Lord of the Rings if we wanted to. Um, because Tolkien was basically like the proto-based guy, uh, yeah. who's like, wait a minute, all this stuff is crazy BS. What's going on? Um, but yeah, so so we look at Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx, and we look at the birth of Gnosticism reframed in the authority of science. So you have that a little bit with Rousseau, but you, when you get to Hegel, he literally calls phenomenology of spirit, which phenomenology is not science by any means. I'll give him a little pass because it was 1807 and nobody knew what science was yet. But he writes, we call it Phenomenology of Spirit, but the title of the book is not Phenomenology of Spirit. It's System of Science, Volume 1, The Phenomenology of Spirit. And so he was laying out what he thought was how science works, the Wissenschaft. And so he he actually gets science completely upside down as a megamaniacal philosopher of 1807 would. And he puts the theory on top and the understanding below. Why? Because he was, as you invoked Plato, a Neoplatonist. And so he believed that the ideal form of how things should be, the absolute idea, is what comes first. And the absolute idea splits, he says, into the theoretical idea and the practical idea. The theoretical idea is your idea, your best approximation of the of of the. Of the absolute idea that's what we think the world should be like and the practical idea is what happens when you try to implement that through the state which he saw as literally in the position of christ in the christian trinity the absolute idea is god it gives birth to a state that in the long end will no longer be necessary so it will be self-sacrificial marx refers to this as it eventually withering away through technology being the means that enables man to be liberated of the need to do any work. And now Klaus is standing here, Klaus Schwab. He's like, we are at the the moment of the rapid acceleration of the future. And the technology is progressing so quickly that soon automation will do all of our workforce. Look at the port in Qingdao. Zero employees, all automated, all AI. Don't need a single person. All these poor, useless eaters, however, need to be addressed. So who did they bring in to the World Economic Forum in 1973 to speak? Uh, they brought in the authors of the first book from the Club of Rome, uh, which is all based off of, as you keep saying, Thomas Malthus, who never being, again, we can attribute this to being a, a person of his time. But he never took a a single, say, course in mathematical ecology and understood, say, how population dynamics actually work. It is probably the case that the Earth has a carrying capacity for humans. It is probably the case that our technology enables it to move, perhaps linearly, while our population grows underneath it exponentially. But what happens when you approach a carrying capacity is not what happens to flies in a jar. What happens is that the curve starts to level off Exponential curves, as we just learned with the COVID, are not exponential forever. They're actually the front end of a logistic curve or a sigmoid curve that exponentially goes up and exponentially levels off the other direction as it approaches the carrying capacity of the population. This is a well-known phenomenon in all population dynamics. In other words, that's a lot of math to say Thomas Malthus didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But that didn't stop uh, the World Economic Forum from taking their first, the Club of Rome's first publications that expounded on his ideas and saying, this is going to be the basis of how we're going to predict what we need to look at as technology progresses in the future in an increasingly unsustainable world that they were reading in the Marxist literature. That was the complaint of 20th century Marxism, that they said the Soviet system has the ideology, but it can't get the production up, so it doesn't work. On the other hand, the capitalist system has production, in fact, it has excess production, but it has the ideology wrong. And so it's unsustainable, it's going to produce and produce and produce, it's going to meet people's needs, and then it's going to expand beyond that to create needs they don't even have, like, I don't know, like, tea cozy with cats on it or dogs or little dog little knitted things they're going to create fake products that nobody actually needs and it's going to those will become the new needs that if you don't have that you don't know how to survive and it's just this endless tower of doom that's going to tip over and the socialism is the one rescue from that capitalist collapse that's imminent so this is the milieu in which schwab not only inviting people from the Club of Rome in to speak at the World Economic Forum in its foundational years, but also bringing in the communist bishop, Domhilder Camara, a year, uh, year later in 1974, who is the, the mentor that Schwab said changed his entire life, outright communist, also the mentor to Pope Francis, also the mentor to the education theorist that's remade our entire education system, Paulo Freire. Uh, turns out that this one liberation theologian priest or bishop had a ton of influence in this regard. So you have this weird mixture of Malthusian ideas and communist ideas and outright Marxism, some neo-Marxism, some of the fascist ideas of the 20th century that they were like, well, that went badly, but it was a good system. And they've kind of created this melting pot and, and put it all together. But the root of it is that they believe that the world itself is the limitation, human nature itself, or human, what it means to be human is a limitation. And this is what Marx says in the Economic Philosophic Manuscripts. He says that mankind won't be liberated until it transcends private property entirely. The idea that there needs to be any ownership has to be transcended. Herbert Marcuse phrased that as, creating a biological foundation for socialism. It's not just a new Soviet man, but we have to remake man at the level of his vital needs so that he only knows how to survive within a socialist environment. And so what do we see? We see an education program pushed by the World Economic Forum called Social Emotional Learning that's supposed to make it so you don't know how to operate in the world except through the social and emotional skills that they are pushing. You have to have an inclusive, resilient, sustainable Greta Thunberg world, or else you have panic attacks and lay in the street like a bunch of wild animals like the Extinction Rebellion people do. Um, You don't know how to live in the world. It's not catering to you. In other words, it creates Gnostics who don't even know that they're Gnostic, uh, who will flail around in the wailing and the gnashing of teeth until they get their way. This is actually what they are trying to do to implement the economy of the future. They're trying to create the uh, population and the culture of the future that won't know how to operate outside of that economy that they're trying to will into being. Because if we go all the way back to Hegel again, the idea of the dialectic is that the world is not what it is or the Gnostics in general, it's what it can become when we seize a hold of at least a partial glimpse of absolute knowledge and apply it to escape our fundamental condition, including the condition of the limitations of being human at all. It's a nightmare. It's It's a nightmare.
0: Total, total, total nightmare. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Jay?
2: Before I, yeah, I'm glad he mentioned um, Hegel because Hegel does play a key role in this process. Of course, Hegel influences Marx. Uh, the Young Hegelians is a, a thing that Marx was involved in early on, and then as you know, people who study Marx, everybody, everybody knows you. You hear this phrase that uh, Marx stood Hegel on his head, and and what that means is that he divested hegelianism of uh the platonic elements and the ideal elements because for, for hegel's philosophy hegel's a, a preeminent idealist right so hegel said the the ideal is the real the real is the ideal and anything that contradicts the system you know let the let them let that be damned if we excise that from the system so it's this grandiose uh, really dogmatic a- attempt to have a logical quote-unquote philosophical scientific approach to everything in hegel and so hegel um gets as he said stood on his head but uh as mcgee put notes in his book hegel was actually uh, the exact book is glenn alexander mcgee uh, hegel and hermetic tradition he shows that uh, as james said hegel was really influenced by platonic and gnostic elements and in, in the hermetic tradition you can find both of those things you can find neoplatonism you can find alchemy you can find all that stuff there you can find kabbalah all of that uh, influences the the even the enlightenment itself there's a, a lot of books that have been written showing that the enlightenment itself was really a, a, a return to ancient paganism and alchemy an alchemist had this idea that you could create a new man, uh, the idea being that mythologically speaking, or in terms of the Gnostic text, or in terms of um, Adam Kadmon and the Kabbalistic tradition, the, the primordial man, <clears throat> Adam Kadmon, was neither male nor female. It was the sort of super being that was created and then had this sort of schism or fall into bodily existence, into the here and the now. Uh, Origin was really influenced by this uh, philosophy in the, in the early church, he's one of the first notable heretics or heterodox figures uh, in, in early Christianity because he tried to import Neoplatonism under the guise of Christian theology and so he basically dressed up the Trinity in a Neoplatonic dress uh, and said no this is you know really what the Biblical Doctrine of Trinity is about, is about what Hegel's, excuse me, is about what Plotinus was talking about, Um, and this gets you know excised and rejected by the orthodox church in the first several centuries and then hegel does a very similar thing to what origin did by basically taking the trinity and making it part of his process philosophy so he makes the trinitarian doctrine to just be sort of a word concept fallacy bait and switch where he just takes the names and the terms of father son holy spirit and switches it out with his philosophy say oh you see really what christianity was always about was was what i'm talking about and um the, the root of this, there's a good book called uh, uh, God History Dialectic, which goes into this with Hegel. And it shows how, what Hegel kind of did was take um, Augustine's, for, for, I'm Orthodox, so we have a, a, a critical per, a perspective on Augustine's view of the Trinity. They kind of took Augustine's view of the Trinity and swished it into the into the natural world. And this becomes really uh, popular in the Latin medieval West to try to find trinities in nature and while it was orthodox, too, and totally reject that, we think there could be a triadic uh, structure to the world. They would, they really absolutize this process to where the Trinity eventually just becomes the process of the natural world. And so, a lot of Augustine's psychological analogies that he uses in on the Trinity for uh, mind, uh, uh, soul, and will, or whatnot, or heart, um, he's, his, his analogies that he found that created order for modern philosophers became. That's really all that was talking about along you see. so so Hegel does the same thing where he takes the the transcendent idea of a transcendent trying God smashes it into the natural world, and it just becomes a process which in Hegel's view is leading us to the Omega point, which would transcend all uh, oppositions so you would have a dialectical opposition between um, the consciousness and object or me versus that or distinctions. have to be gradually overcome in a process to where everything is a giant self-conscious blob everything even inanimate things become self-consciousness because for hegel real existence is ideas like Plato thought right so the lower diminished status of existence that this world here and the now has has to be overcome and the only way to overcome that in in hegel's view is a process which leads to omega point we even find um heterodox jesuits like pierre Tehard de chardin who, uh, as James said, um, some of these other uh, Marxist uh, philosophers in the Roman Catholic liberation theology circles influenced many of these global elites. Uh, Pierre de Chardin did the exact same thing with influencing a lot of philosophers, a lot of transhumanists, because he adopted this Hegelian view that, oh, Christianity is actually just about evolutionary material process, dialectical process, leading to the transcendence of limitations of time and space. And so just restates Hegel basically, and so the transhumanists are all pretty much influenced by all of these same ideas, and I would add too that um, you know it's not just not that James is saying this, but from my perspective, it's not just um, sort of ideological influences. That's definitely there. We can definitely trace a lot of these strands throughout history. But there's also <clears throat> big, powerful money influence that that's involved in this, and that's that's why these uh, ideas, in part, are so prevalent. Not so much because they're true or because. We just intuitively, you know, resonate with them, but there's actually, you know, a tremendous amount of money and power behind pushing these ideas. And I'm happy to, to, to have seen um, traditional Catholics themselves eventually come to realize this. There's a great book by David Wimhoff uh, about John Courtney Murray, the famous Jesuit, who uh, was an asset of the CIA. We even know the program is the doctrinal warfare program, whereby Henry Luce, people at Time Magazine had actually... Um, sort of bought off these famous prominent Jesuits, and I'm not blaming everything on Jesuits, I'm just saying that this is, this is uh, vindicated by the doctrinal warfare program, C.D. Jackson, that they uh, were able to influence the Vatican, uh, especially the time of Vatican II, to accept a lot of these liberation theology ideas. The liberation theology is actually present in a lot of the Vatican II documents, like Nostra Aetate, like Lumen Gentium, and Wimoff shows in about 800 pages and about a thousand footnotes that this is 100 percent demonstrable that this was that this was has not just of the some organization, but the CIA working to the behest of the people who own the United States, people like Rockefeller, people like J.P. Morgan interests, the same people that Dr. Carroll Quigley identifies in his uh, magisterial tragedy and hope are the exact same people buying a uh, foundation and NGO influence in the Roman Catholic church to basically turn it into a giant NGO, not just to promote um, at that time during the cold war, the idea of Americanism, but eventually, and nowadays to promote full on socialism, transhumanism, the various thing, uh, the very things that James has uh, correctly pointed out that Pope Francis, uh, you know, basically saying the same things uh, as, uh, uh, as Klaus. So we can see that this is not uh, just a um, you know, big money World Economic Forum thing. This actually is tied into religious engineering or the attempts of uh, power blocks to control and steer religious groups. And that's something that I've highlighted in a lot of these global elite lectures is that they, they're very open about this. They're very open about co-opting religious groups for the purpose of religious engineering. Brzezinski talks about it. David Rockefeller talks about it. Uh, you you pretty much any of these global elites you read their writings they will talk about how to buy off and co-opt religious engineering and I, I highly recommend anybody who wants to go deeper into this to read uh David Wimhoff's book he's a I'm not Roman Catholic but he's a Roman Catholic lawyer who himself documented all of this in his own book so I, that's why I think it's so valuable um and there's other books that cover it too but those are great places to start I mean this has always
1: <clears throat> always been kind of the nature of that right is that. There are the so the the Malou, when you look back, well you look at Rousseau or you look especially at Hegel and you look at um you know Marx kind of that hundred-year period there, so 1750 to 1850, these idiotic mystery religion ideas were literally kind of like the currency of the elite at the time. They everybody kind of dipped into them, you know, it was you know. Christianity for the masses, just kind of this thing you showed up to, you listened to mass, it was probably still in Latin, and then you went about your life, maybe you were, you know, in one of the Lutheran traditions, or one of these Protestant traditions, and then blah, blah, blah. But the elites, the the, the people who had money or had access to money, or were being propped up by money, were all trafficking, and whether it was Kabbalah, whether it was, whether it was hermetic ideas, alchemy, whether it was was Gnostic ideas, you know, that's what the, it's like, just like today, all the weird Hollywood people are in all these kind of weird practices, I and mean, you look at Madonna and she's like cobble like glommed onto like every weird thing you could possibly get into. It's the things that the rich people do and the these kind of big money entities make those philosophies go. The reason that those become the hugest philosophies that we follow, these intellectual currents isn't particularly because they're that persuasive. it's even in our own day, it's because there are Enormous amounts of money behind them. Woke is idiotic. All of the woke philosophy, critical race theory, critical queer theory, whatever. It doesn't matter which one you pick. These are idiotic. They. You read from the, the criticisms from the 1990s of, say, queer theory, or the criticisms outside of them from uh, of critical race theory. You go back to the 1970s and you read the criticisms of critical pedagogy and liberation theology, and they are absolutely final. I mean, these criticisms are absolutely final and they all contain this idea like how in the world is this ever, this is just an academic, you know, bubble. How is this ever gonna get out of the academy? And the answer to that question is money, (laughs) lots of money. Rich people see that these things have either some spiritual, you know, quest for them that, that has meaning for them and they latch on to them and they wanna engineer religion in some particular way according to whatever their own weird cult beliefs are, or they see that they're very useful for other purposes, uh, and they basically prop them up to the tune of, you know, in, in, in today's money, trillions of dollars uh, to make sure that those ideas are getting promoted throughout the world. Woke would have died a ugly and, and sad death in the university by about 2005 or 10 had there not been people who decided that dumping rivers of money into those departments to prop them up and into researchers and to endowed chairs and so on to keep them going. And then to start using the the bankers figured it out during Occupy Wall Street. They're like, "Wow, let's dump a whole bunch of money into these absolute lunatics who are basically the social equivalent of like hydrofluoric acid or whatever that will dissolve anything and throw them into the middle of this thing, taking on our power base and see what happens." And then you know we have all these you know point of personal privilege and you know you're a white man so you can't talk. All their organizers like are like, "I can't deal with this bullshit anymore," and they're out. And the the banks all of a sudden are like. Rainbow flags everywhere, guys. Let's go. We look great. We look like we're on the right side of history. And meanwhile, it crushes anything we stick it into so we don't have any real opposition up against us. Nobody can unify. Everybody's fighting about everything all the time. Uh, there's an ocean of money being used to use these idiotic ideas as social engineering. When we get back to like Hegel and his, his alchemy, of course, if you believe in social alchemy, which we'd say Hegel 1807, we go or 18. 18- 20 or whatever, we go forward to 1992. We have George Soros writing literally The Alchemy of Finance, where he's talking about how he's created this reflexive way to to saturate the media environment so as to create certain large mass movements that have huge financial ramifications that a smart person planning ahead can take advantage of. And now he's trying to re engineer society using the exact same techniques of media saturation, creating the conditions that make the media saturation look true etc. You see that there's this idea that these kind of mover and shape shaker, you know, people who want to shape reality through whether they believe the beliefs or they find them useful, kind of irrelevant, uh, but who have tons of money and want to put them into practice, you're going to see something like Hegel saying, oh, wow, the Christian Trinity is a process. The father gives birth to the son. The son gives rise to a spirit. But in the realm of the spirit is where the conflict takes place. And people realize how they're not living up to the full nature. So there's a revolution in ideas and the father's reborn, but closer together, the, the theoretical and practical idea come closer together every turn. So it's not just a spiral through history. Like you said, it's like a drill going down to that omega point, that final point where everything is, you know overcome everything is transcended and they're like wow this is a useful way to create revolutions. I just had an argument on Twitter with somebody today over something sort of somewhat stupid which is that I'd presented that the 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 Marxist idea which of course cor- as you said correctly derives from Hegel uh his his standing Hegel on his head was just saying let's make man the god. The ideas aren't out there in the ether the ideas are in man's head so man is actually the creator of the idea. And so he literally turns it satanic, uh, but otherwise retains this process-driven trinity. Um, what I was saying is that it, it, it always uh, implements itself in a way that will fail. And in fact, they're explicit about this when you get to about 1960, 1970. They're saying if that you have a vision for what you want to impose on the world, then you're by by nature right-wing. You're going to impose it and create a new tyranny. You've You've adopted the... The, if we go back to kind of the Gnostic language, you, you've become the new jailer of mankind after you seem to pretend to set him free. Uh, and the 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 kind of grappling of kind of Gnostic philosophy in the late, 19, uh, late 20th century would have been, how do you solve the reproduction problem? That if you have an, a revolution and you overthrow the existing oppressive order, a new oppressive order takes over. Postmodernism is kind of this like gasp, like, eh, Nothing works, and then you know. Meanwhile, the critical theorists are like, "No, we just relentlessly, relentlessly criticize until the divine society emerges out of the ashes." Uh, and so, there's these kind of two approaches that that were able to come back together later. But I was saying that they don't know what they're doing, so it's always going to fail. But in the the next thing that you say when it fails is, "Well, we need to do it more. We need to have. We we we're going to criticize what happened, and the reason it failed was because we haven't achieved the transcendence." of reality yet the people who implemented it hadn't transcended the oppressive mindset they hadn't transcended the idea of proper uh, private property or the division of one man from another through whichever stratification power dynamic race sex class whatever it happens to be they haven't transcended enough and so i said this is the fundamental nature of why it doesn't work and why it will never work and why they don't know what they're doing and um This guy kind of comes back with me and is like, no, it's just about power. And I was like, no, if you actually read their literature, they have actually written out explicitly, they say that their theory, that their whole program, that dialectical process is a theory of how do you have repeated coups until you get to the omega point. It is one revolution after another, after another, and they should be getting closer and closer together so that they eventually become, as Paulo Freire says, explicitly perpetual revolution which we live in this perpetual morasses chaos of revolution out of which we could, if we go back to kind of, um, you know, religious uh, uh, symbology, that the tree of life will grow out of this chaos, and then we can transcend. The World Economic Forum has put a date on it. 2045 is the year they've said that man will become immortal. They put it out in Time Magazine with a kind of scary image of a mannequin with a matrix wire plugged in the back of its head. To 2045 is the year that man becomes immortal. We transcend. They've done the Moore's law calculation. Apparently, and decided that that's when technology gets good enough, uh, where we leave humanity behind and become Homo Deus. But uh, this is the ultimately what these crackpots think, and they do have the power to leverage ungodly amounts of money in order to facilitate it with ideas that you know would barely tickle the fancy of teenagers for a decade before falling out of fashion otherwise if they weren't being propped up by literally trillions of dollars
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i don't know that
1: that answered much but it was a hell of a rant
0: <laughs> i think it answered a lot there was a lot in there i'm wondering where that leads us because there is so much much money behind you know behind all of these really, really terrible ideas, as you both have pointed out, and where are we in that, you know, stage, and uh, yeah, where where does that leave us, I guess, is kind of the, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, we're not in a, we're, we're, I think we're at a point of inflection, to be honest with you. The problem with these philosophies is that they are a little idealistic, no matter how much they want to pretend that they pulled it down into the material or whatever. Marx still had an ideal for humanity. The critical theorists still have an ideal as well. They just pretend that we don't know what it is and that we Mm -hmm. can't know what it is, but that we get there by criticizing everything that we decide isn't that. But that still is, it's just a pure act of rebellion or a great refusal, as Marcuse called it, referencing Dante. Uh, the the great refusals of people who had denied heaven, but they also refused to commit to anything. So hell was like, yeah, we won't have you either. And they were cursed to live outside of hell, wandering around following a a standard that was blank, a flag, their flag carrier carried a blank flag because they stood for nothing. And so they were stung by bees in the face and chewed on by flies, but they couldn't get into hell and they couldn't get into heaven and they were just lost people. And that's actually what Marcuse said the objective was, but I think we're actually at this point of inflection where what they fail to realize in every single case is that getting everybody to go along with your crackpot program doesn't work. And then they start having some reign of terror or white terror or red terror, pick your favorite color. This one is probably going to be a green terror if we have to give it a name. The green terror is playing out right now in Sri Lanka. For example, the green terror is playing out in the Netherlands right now. The green terror is playing out in Germany where they're rationing gas and electricity so they can save up for winter and building warming stations for people in public in case the winter is cold and they can't heat their houses. Um, The the green terror is playing out. But the thing is, is if we outlast the terror, their idiotic ideas fall on their face. Mm -hmm. They burn through a couple trillion bucks for nothing except to cause a bunch of damage. And then we pick up the pieces and move forward. And this has been the kind of uh, you know, it, forever war that humanity has had to wage against these kind of social engineers. And the trick is holding out and starting to build uh, circumstances in which we can hold at least some of their mid-level minions fully accountable. The top level guys have gobs of money and always escape accountability. And then they try it again in 50 years. But the <laughs> mid-level guys, Um, who are quite high up, Klaus Schwab is a mid-level guy, could easily be held to account. He has been designated to be the bag man for the Green Terror, and that's probably, if we can, if we can, as a brave heart would yell, hold, hold, hold until the right moment, uh, without flipping our shit and giving them the advantage, um, he's probably going to end up holding the bag for the Green Terror, and uh, it's, it's, we're at i think we're at or very near that point of inflection where enough people have realized that there's a game being played mm-hmm. on all of us and yeah. that it's not me against you or your religion against my religion it's that there's some goons up here who are making it look like that so that they can pull off some gigantic heist of humanity and everything that it that it can produce for themselves i mean i just saw the thing today the video from World Economic Forum from a year or two ago where they're talking about the circular economy that they want to bring us to. Circular economy, you just listen to that word, that phrase, and you're like, that's not going to work. Entropy <laughs> still exists. That's just not real. And But the guy explains what the circular economy is. See, they say that we have a linear economy now. We go dig resources out of the ground. We make and produce something. We sell them, then we throw them away you know, everything's a line instead, we're going to get our, our resources and we're going to use them. And then we're going to, you know, recycle in some way or another, not necessarily physical recycling. It could be giving it to somebody else and we're going to reuse and we're going to reuse and we're going to reuse. And somehow magically, this is just going to continue to work in, you know, at the macro scale for everything. But the guy says, he says, oh, they, they always are. So they're so stupid. They always give away what they actually mean. They literally go on interviews and say it like they're really proud of it. This fellow, and I'd have to go look who he is, some European business guy, says, well, as a manufacturer, it behooves me actually not to have you own the things I produce. As the manufacturer, I could retain ownership because you don't want the thing I sell you you don't want the shovel. You want the benefit of the shovel. He doesn't use the shovel as, a, as an example, but I, I'm making it concrete for you. He doesn't. He, you don't need the computer. You need the benefit of the computer. So you don't have to own the computer. You just have to own the means of benefiting from that temporarily. So this is literally where you will own nothing and you will be happy comes from is the idea that everything will just be shared. You don't have to own a car. The state or something. We all own cars. Some magical, you know, tragedy the commons, avoiding Uber, where nobody owns a car but they drive themselves and take us everywhere we need to go. So there's no need for individuals to own cars whatsoever. Um, we don't need to own the computer that we have in front of us because we just need to use it for certain things so we have it today and we give it to somebody else tomorrow the manufacturer retains ownership though and can in a sense sell it over and over again and i draw you back to the story of john deere and their high-tech tractors that have these sensors water soil quality etc and it's centimeter by centimeter grid of your entire farm in terms of its soil quality and it generates this data as you drive the tractor around but you still pay john deere three hundred thousand to 1.3 million dollars to own that tractor which you don't own you are leasing it from them for that price because they found a legal loophole that there's the code that they use to run all the stuff that's built into it is a copyrighted code and you can't own their copyright so they've only leased to you the tractor so you don't even own that and you agree to the terms of service that they own all the data you generate every time you push the start button as the implicit agreement to the terms of service. So in a sense, John Deere still owns the tractor that you own or that you drive as a farmer, and they own the data you generate with the the device that you are leasing from them, because it's not even your device. Unlike if I go buy a Canon camera, I own the camera. And so the picture that I take on it, I own the copyright to the picture. In this case, John Deere technically still owns the tractor. So they own the data that generates as well. And this Imagine this scaled out, not just to tractors, but to everything, is the idea of the circular economy. So the manufacturer, this is a literal reinvention of serfdom, a literal reinvention. Everybody becomes the serf, the Mm -hmm. new lords and ladies of the uh, new economy, the circular economy, are the corporate overlords and their stakeholder buddies. Um, who get to determine how everything is, but they retain the ownership of everything. And this is the the world that they want to move us into to transcend the idea of uh, ownership and private property in a kind of weird simulated version of what Karl Marx says is the true communism, because their belief is that if you impose it long enough, it becomes just how it is, because that's how they think the world works, and the people will just accept it. And in fact, they won't know how to live any other way. And therefore... You've remade man at the at least his psychological level but eventually it could be further than that so that that is just how it is. they think if they impose their tyranny that's what the dictatorship of socialism is is if you impose a simulation of communism eventually people just accept it and you don't need the state to manage it anymore so it withers away if you impose a circular economy, you don't need people. People within a generation or two won't even have a concept of ownership anymore. And they've transcended private property in alignment with what Marx said way back in 1844 when he wrote it down in the economic and philosophic manuscripts for the first time. And so this is sort of like this weird vision that they have is why Klaus has a bust of Lenin behind him in one of his offices that he interviews from. He's he's the vanguard. He runs, their bank is actually called Vanguard. I can't believe they actually called their bank vanguard. But the vanguard is supposed to sh- shepherd the stupid proles who won't organize for themselves through the revolution. The problem is that Marx wasn't totally wrong about the abuses of crony capitalism. Uh, and he wasn't wrong that the workers would eventually realize their exploitation and rise up. What he was wrong about is that they don't want socialism at all. They're going to rise up to get their freedom. Yeah. They're Completely wrong about why... People, This is why I say MAGA is class consciousness. MAGA is the prediction of Marx, but of course, Marx runs an inversion of reality, so it's inverted from the way Marx described it. Uh, the workers realize that these big entities are screwing us, and they are exploiting us, and they are alienating us from what it means to be ourselves, literally, with the transhuman agenda. but. Also, like with the farmers, you're not a farmer anymore, because your farm has too much nitrogen. So we're going to shut your farm down. So you're no longer a farmer or your identity as a farmer doesn't matter. You know, we're going to collapse your farm. And then by the way, as we just saw revealed in the last two days, the World Economic Forum had a plan to buy all those farms after they collapsed. How about that? Mm.
0: Imagine and that. so um,
1: what, what you see here, though, is this, that the, the, the Marx lays out an inversion of reality. It's not Hegel standing on its head. It's reality standing on its head. And these people push to fulfill it. But because it's an inversion of reality, lots of pieces actually appear there, but upside down. Uh, and people are realizing. It. So I think we're at this point of inflection now where uh, people are very, very rapidly cottoning on to what's happening. And as we see in the Netherlands, they're just not gonna have it. The farmers in the Netherlands said that they are declaring war on their government, which is bold statement. I guess we'll see how it works out, but this is actually kind of the attitude. You see what happened in Sri Lanka. They just basically chased the government out of town. Um, And Klaus Schwab comes in and says, oh, look at the collapse. They delete their article about how in, in seven years, they wrote in 2018, by 2025, we're gonna make Sri Lanka the richest country in the world or something like this. That article is gone, memory hold, deleted. And now they've published an article in the last day how the circular economy can save Sri Lanka from its problems. So they've broken it, and they're now they're going to implement their freaking solution, just like what I was saying earlier, because it's a constant revolutionary movement to where they break a thing, and then they're, here's a solution, and that'll break things, and then here's a solution. And in every case, what it is is we get to have power because we're the only people who can see the chains that bind us because we're the Gnostics that understand the process the the true dialectical or whatever process of reality to transform it accordingly and then we're all going to be free and like hg Well said it wouldn't be great to die for this because like hegel said history uses people and then discards them the point is for history to achieve its resolution at the omega point at the eschaton
2: nasty yeah. stuff yeah nasty stuff i'm glad you mentioned the circular economy because uh we Ida Alkin, you can look up her uh, TED talks, and she she's one of the sort of front piece evangelists of this, and she's out there that promotes this through the TED talks. And it's very revealing in her TED talks. We did we did some podcasts on her a while back, and she says, you know, that um, it's gonna it's always sold as if this is gonna be so great. And I was just sitting here thinking about how absurd the the logic that they try to force onto these things. That the, the people who have this thought process, like they literally. Not maybe not at the very tip top, but the people who, the managerial class that tries to impose this, they always feel like there's some perfect um, you know, algorithm that they can create that will figure out fairness. And just it, if you look into the utilitarians and the moral calculus that they try to come up with, you can see how spurgy and, and just ridiculous this idea is like, what is the mathematical formula that's going to tell you the pleasure points by which you know when something is fair or not fair? Now, even though utilitarians weren't necessarily the the Marxist socialists, the same quantification idea is there that like uh, there's going to be a, a formula that tells you the exact number of pairs of whitey tidies that you should have. Right, and so so if I've got five pairs of whitey tidies, I don't need five pairs. I just need two, right, to alternate each day. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna hand them over to my neighbors. Hey, hey guys, I'm gonna knock at the door. I don't need these three pairs of uh, old uh, whitey tidies. You want to share these with me? I mean, just think how absurd this is. Right, what's what's the right uh, formula for chicken strips? Right, do I really need two chicken strips a day, uh, or do I just need one beyond meat chicken strip a day? Right, I mean, there's no algorithm there's a formula mathematical principle that can tell you these things but this is the the insanity of the managerial Spurgy class that imposes this stuff you know the silicon valley people that they're gonna hire to put into practice the you know social credit system or whatever they will actually believe that you can do this um but i i think at the tip top you've got these people that are just completely sort of pragmatic completely um, in some cases, they may be, uh, you know, satanic or uh, luciferian believers in some uh, esoteric religion. In some cases, they're just believers in, uh, you know, technology and transhumanism as a kind of religion. A lot of the people in Silicon Valley have a kind of inner religion uh, where they meet at Burning Man, and they, they do believe that they're going to, you know, instantiate the deus ex machina that Ray Kurzweil talks about. Um, some of them, I think, are just uh, materialist atheists or, or Marxist socialists. Some of them are monopoly capitalists. But what I want to hammer home that I'm, I know James knows about, but a lot of the audience may not know about because this is just really hard for people to accept. People are starting to get this, uh, mm-hmm. but it's something that I've been preaching for a long time, uh, which is that big, big, big money, monopoly capitalists, the super elite, they're not opposed to Marxism and socialism. They don't see it as a threat. They don't see it as something that you know could take over the world and topple their... Uh, you know, dominance on the means of uh, owning the means of production. They see it as a as a tool, as a technology. And uh, Quigley highlighted this in Tragedy and Hope. In the middle chapter, there's a great middle, there's two, two really important chapters in the book. The whole book's important. But the middle chapter on the managerial class that he wrote in the 60s, he says that people don't realize that in the future, the society is going to be run by AI supercomputers and it's gonna dictate uh, you know, what you need of, of underwears, how many beyond meat chicken strips you need each week, right? It's, it's gonna dictate those things and it's going to be based around need, not uh, you a know, uh, skill, not uh, talents, not merit, not any of those things. It's gonna be based around what they think you need, not who decides what the needs are. I mean, it's just, it's always arbitrary, but people fall for this because Most of the time, Marxism, socialism is promoted at the ground level and at the university level to dupe young, inexperienced minds. And so when I was at uh, undergrad and grad school, as you can imagine, uh, a large portion of the uh, undergrad and grad professors in the humanities open Marxist socialists, right? Very open about it. Uh, We even had people that had been involved in uh, the Russian Communist Party who had been brought over to America and, oh, we're supposed to think that they're Reagan. Uh, oh, well, I'm, I'm not a Soviet anymore, I'm a Reagan uh, Republican, right? Which, ironically, a lot of the neocons were Trotskyite. So it actually does kind of make sense that we would have these <laughs> Trotskyite people in the universities. And another important point to, to mention that I'm sure James knows about, which is the uh, there's a there was sort of a schism or pseudo schism amongst the Marxists uh, in the 20th century, where you got this classical Marxist. And then you have what are called the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School are the critical theorists. And I was uh, blessed and cursed at the same time in my universities to study under some of the, I have, I, I have what I joke as Marxistolic succession, where uh, the church, you have apostolic succession. So my professor studied under a guy who's studying under Habermas. So I have a Marxistolic succession lineage, not because I believe Marxism, but just because I have an insight to where I can critique it because I had these classes with you know, we're reading Habermas, we're reading Horkheimer and Adorno, we're reading Lukash, we're reading all these people. So, I uh, James is totally right when it when he talks about the perpetual critique, and their whole thing was critique never ends, and critique is not just an ideological thing of academics. In fact, they hated the idea of academics sitting back and just sort of uh, pontificating and from their ivory towers. They thought that was bourgeois. You no, know, you have to be involved in praxis. So praxis is the essence of real. Uh, you know, Franksism, Frankfurt School Marxism, where we have to be involved in doing things, you have to be involved in uh, breaking down. And in fact, they even thought that the Marxists of the next generation have to critique the previous Marxists, because they weren't, there. that's the never-ending cycle. And so, in my view, really wealthy people have looked at this and seen this, who are very cunning, very pragmatic, and they see that this is an amazing tool for destroying societies, for revolutionizing uh, uh, professor, prof, professor Anthony Sutton has a great series of books that I recommend, uh, where he talks about Wall Street, uh, funding the Bolshevik revolution, Wall Street, uh, funding, you know, Hitler and his rise to power. David Rockefeller wrote two different uh, New York Times editorials, uh, one uh, most famous of which is from a China traveler, where he brags about uh, uh, his love and support for Mao. All right. and i always i love to throw this to the boomers not that i hate boomers but boomers have a really hard time i think because they grew up in the cold war they have a hard time <laughs> accepting that how could david Rocker, david rockefeller the number one richest man in america loves communism how could david rockefeller love communism well he wrote editorials praising Mao. why because he saw it as this amazing technology that levels the society centralizes the wealth and then typically you know if you read the, the ten uh Planks of Marxism. One of those is to create a centralized bank. That's a, really just a scam to transfer that money, in my view, offshore. And amazingly, Quigley, although he doesn't go deep into talking about uh, Marxism per se, he does say that the uh, international banking you know, elite, the Bank for International Settlements, which is kind of like the Federal Reserve of Federal Reserves, this secret, super secret inner bank, uh, he says, was in many ways behind the conflicts of the 20th century, the First World War, the Second World War. And then uh, to a large degree also the cold war if you back that up with sutton's books and that's again because it's it's not that they believe communism it's rather that it's a great tool for leveling a society uh wiping out what came before remember the jacobins had this idea of creating year zero year zero we'll have a whole new calendar where you don't reference you know christian or catholic saints or any of this stuff you know, on christmas you don't have any of that you have Year zero and these weird made up uh, uh, holidays, Thermidor, whatever, this made up stuff, right? Atheist holidays, basically. And so the parallels between year zero and Jacobin's great and great reset is phenomenal. I mean, it's almost like, as James said, you know, Klaus is up there reading as a very wealthy person with all these other very wealthy people, you know, reading Lenin and Lenin and Mao and different people talking about perpetual revolution and realizing this is a great plan, this is great. You know, this is, this is like the master villain playing both sides. Monopoly capitalists love the Marxists and their dialectics because in my view, it's just a tool, it's just a technology. Even uh, the great historian Oswald Spengler, he has a famous quote where he says, I don't agree with everything Spengler said, but even he noticed this, he said, There's never been a socialist revolution which did not have behind it a massive monopoly capital. And I think that really sums up what I'm trying to get at here, which is that this is not a thing to make anybody's life better. As uh, James said, this is a, uh, a scam, a big, a big scam to get everybody to surrender things like the right to private property, the right to have a business, the right to have free interaction, free economic exchange, uh, and to hand this over to the elites who I believe are intentionally going to eventually, uh, implode the existing system i think they want to implode the existing system i don't know for sure how that'll come about it might take five years ten years i don't know but i think they want to implode it that's why they run up massive debts massive you know trillion 19 20 trillion dollars federal reserve debt national debt they run they run that up they have these big bubbles And I think that's to eventually pop it so that Klaus and company can come in and say, you see, we told you you're angry because it doesn't work. You need us. We will give you the solution. We will save you. They'll offer the solution to the problem that they wanted to be there
1: yeah <clears throat> i think they do have that savior mentality in fact i think they have the huge savior complex running behind all this so they create the problem so they can rescue from the problem and it, like you see the circular economy stuff swooping in in sri lanka you know like they are vultures.
0: Sorry, the next <laughs>
1: day they're like aha this Is a circular economy you know but um i actually want to roll backwards to the to the the, the spurge algorithm thing um because what a lot of people don't understand is that they do believe this. They do believe that they can come up with some algorithm uh, that they think that this is part of why socialism hasn't worked so far is that the algorithm hasn't been good enough, but they're looking at the Walmart supercomputer that can predict how many strawberry pop tarts you need. If there's a thunderstorm or whatever, and they're like, maybe it's good enough now. And so they're, they're looking at this, but where they're actually testing that algorithm is not just in that uh, you know, kind of big box, Amazon uh, Walmart supercomputer, driven economic sector, they're literally intentionally testing it in the social dynamic section on your children. And that's how psychopathic these people are. Um, I mean, literally psychopathic. When you say, you know, the people at the tip top, what are the, you know, religions, Whatever, satanic maybe, but maybe not. They're psychopaths. They're, they're absolute psychopaths. And they're testing on your children. And this is really where that social emotional learning component comes from. We go back to the World Economic Forum, started in 2015 and 16, putting out white papers on social emotional learning which is kind of fringe thing in, in education at the time, had a lot of backing from Linda Darling Hammond, who'd worked with Obama, who was recommended by Bill Ayers to work with Obama. And she becomes kind of the common core czar under Obama or a deputy, maybe I don't remember exactly what her title was. So she's got all these kind of crackpot ideas about SEL. She works now for CASEL, which is the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning. So it's the big corporation that authenticates all of it. She's intricate in the education stuff going on with the biden white house but uh she's not really a huge part of the story but you go back to this white paper and they start describing what kinds of things so you were saying you know well they want it, how many chicken strips or beyond meat chicken strips or cricket chicken strips or um you know pairs of underpants or whatever optimize human flourishing you go back to this white paper that they put out i think it's the, the I don't remember if it was 15 or 16 white paper. They put out a lot of stuff in both of those years because they thought Clinton was going to win the election for sure. And they'd be able to usher us through kind of like Australia, Canada and New Zealand went through. And then um, Orange Man screwed that right up for him a bit uh, in some ways. But at any rate, this paper, they explain that one of the things they want to implement is within the educational domain for social emotional learning. Like right now, it's that, you know, you teach these social emotional lessons, you provoke emotional responses using maybe Freudian generative pedagogy, Mm -hmm. you have the teacher work as a facilitator to kind of teach them to correct social emotional responses, to up their emotional IQ as a primary goal of education. But in the future, this is going to get better, they explain. They say, well, through things like wearable technology, high sensitivity cameras, uh, surveillance technology, you'll be able to do eye tracking on the students. When do they pay attention? When are they paying attention? When are they kind of zone out? You'll be able to eye track and say what catches their interest and what doesn't. You'll be able to have wearable technology that says what is their emotional reaction to the lesson? Are they becoming upset? Are they getting angry? Are they disengaging? Are they having those emotional pleasure spots? And the goal is actually to be able to feed all that crap into an algorithm. On The, the, the near-term goal is to build out a social credit profile Right. That basically contours perfectly to each individual attached to a digital ID that will control their ability to buy, sell, move, act, behave, et cetera, for everything. Access the internet, access your bank. Look at China right now. I mean, well, okay, China up to about four days ago. <laughs> right now, they're kind of blowing up around this issue uh, with the bank freezes that they tried to pull off, and people are pissed. And I don't know how that's going to play out because what a mess. But, uh, up until a few days ago, at least China had the social credit system where, well, you don't, you, you can't buy such and such today, or you can only buy so much meat this month, or you can't get on a train because you said something bad about the government, or you embarrassed the government in some way that might be totally made up and arbitrary, et cetera, et cetera. What the, that's the near-term goal is a social credit profile for your child right. with a digital ID that exists when they graduate because they've been building it through the social emotional learning. But the longer-term goal is to train the algorithm to know exactly how to read people's emotions by their eye movements, by if they're wearing their, you know, whoop watch or whatever technology it is, it measures your heart rate, your perspiration, those little rings that we talked about earlier, to measure those things and be able to actually, you know, deliver the propaganda hit in real time, as you have those things, you know, so you went on Amazon, which is the only retailer left in 2035, or whatever, and you bought three pairs of new black, tidy, blackies, I guess, uh, underwear. And wow, you had this like little hit of, hit of dopamine and you felt good. And they're like, aha, you know, we can allow you to buy up to, or borrow, I guess, up to three pairs of underwear per six months or whatever, because it optimizes your human experience and you can have your you know, live in your pod and eat your crickets and have your three, three pairs of underwear a month or whatever, and you feel good, you are owning nothing and being happy. And they can contour the happiness part in a kind of very brave new world, speaking of that science fiction uh, by, but the training, the algorithm, what I really wanted to bring up on children yeah. in schools, because the children are absolutely unable to resist this. Right. Um, they don't have a choice. You know, Glenn Youngkin, our, our Republican savior of Virginia, just made a $300 million deal with Google to, for education. What's this $300 million deal? Do? Well, it brings in all kinds of awesome technology, iPads and things for whatever Google's equivalent of that is, for the students to be able to learn learning devices and so on. Well, guess what? All that stuff that Klaus has been talking about seven, eight years ago, he builds all of this wearable technology and eye tracking technology and emotion registering technology, et cetera as a financial opportunity for companies that want to get in on this at the ground floor and start building out the technology. Now, I just saw the World Economic Forum put out a thing a few days ago, about like the 14 leaders in social emotional learning technology. And they list the 14 of them. And they're all like AI chatbots that you can your, your kid goes to school, your teacher, I don't know what the teacher does, but they have an AI chatbot that they actually learn from, and they talk to and they tell their secrets to and every other thing. And it lists like, 12 of the 14 are like these AI chatbot programs that are supposed to facilitate learning, then one of them is a the friggin Trevor project, which is a, they claim to be a uh, helpline to usher gender dysphoric kids away from suicide, but they're a groomer facility that's pumping them into, uh, you know, social transition followed by uh, uh, slavery to the pharmaceutical and medical industrial complex for the rest of their lives by getting them to cut off their gonads or something like this and bomb their bodies with hormones and Lupron and things like this that, that are going to destroy them and make them pharmaceutical and medical patients for the rest of their lives at extremely high costs. Um, so it's really a, a funneling entity. In the world economic Forum lists that among 12 or 13 weird AI, dr- all AI-driven companies that are supposed to facilitate learning that come through these devices. I don't know that it's the same devices that, that Youngkin and a couple other governors have made similar deals in their states. Uh, Google's giving $175 million in education to, I don't remember if it was Utah or Idaho or whatever, and the governor, governor signs off on it. Maybe it was Oklahoma. One of, It's a ruby red state, one of those three anyway. Ruby red state, $175 million. Glenn Youngkin, Republican in Virginia, $300 million from Google. Google doesn't care about Virginians. No. Or humans. Google cares about Google and whatever Google's looped into as the second largest corporation on earth under the alphabet, uh, parent corp, that's as it's second largest to BlackRock, by the way, yep. and it's looped right into the whole program at the heart of the whole thing. And so the idea, though, is to use these devices to train their algorithms so that they can kind of reflexively work with children And how do the children react to this thing if the AI chatbot says it Scan their eyes as they're they're looking at their screen, monitor, you know, they've got their little wearable watch on or it's getting the perspiration out of their hands, depending on whatever device it might be, monitor, you know, down the line, wearable tech, maybe not today, but five years from now, certainly monitor that, train the algorithm to become literally the perfect A, propaganda device and B, marketing device. For this entity, so that you can make sure that it will involve itself in the circular economy, the maximum profits of the manufacturers retain and ownership, while being happy in their pod with their bugs on their video game of life that they get to live until they don't make any children and die, killing off their lineage, probably because they cut their genitals off because they were groomed by the AI chatbot to not have gonads anymore, and then the lineage dies out, and then you don't have all these useless eaters by 2050 because everybody got old and died except for the kids who cut their balls off and you can't make babies. Look at that solution.
0: I can,
2: I can hear a pop-up in the year 2050. Congratulations on your castration and sterilization procedure. Your reward is three YD tighties, right? Yeah.
1: Right. The extra tight <laughs> for the support you need because you had a castration <laughs> to hold in the surgical wound. Um, yeah. It's a nightmare. Uh, totally. so the, But these people, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right to say that they think that there's an algorithm that can be devised. They've even tossed out the term. Actually, I think a critic of them, I think it was Stephen Hicks throughout the term algorocracy, government by algorithm. They think that they can devise an algorithm that will will answer all the questions of life, satisfy all the needs of life, give you the exact dose of dopamine-inducing entertainment that you need in the moment so that you're not miserable, as long as they let you keep going, uh, you know, or whatever. And this is the number of you know, you don't need real chicken strips. You have your beyond, beyond chicken strips made out of crickets and and humans uh, that went before you, or whatever soil and green nasty stuff they decide to make it out of. And made it out of like sawdust and, and and insect protein or something. And you know, you'll be happy because they put a bunch of other crap in it that maybe causes cancer, but it tastes good. Um, this is this is the world they think that they can engineer so that we can transcend the limitations. Like we started with Gnosticism, as the belief that the world itself is the problem that we have to somehow break free of. We have to trans this is the word Marx used repeatedly in every Marxist ever since. And you see it on the UN sustainable development goals. The T-word transform 17 goals to transform our world. Marx, we have to transform humans into their, back into their native uh, or their, their original uh, form, which is that they're not just a, a being, but a species being that lives in a perfectly social arrangement with everybody. And what does he also say in true communism? In true communism, he says, and again, in economic philosophic manuscripts, if I'm not mistaken, that the world as it is, is not fit for humans but humans are also not fit for the world. So what we have to do is we have to make the world fit for humans, we have to transform the world to be fit for humans, but they have to be be made to be fit for transformed humans who deserve the world that we're creating. And so this dialectical process of materialism that's transforming everything in reality, including human beings uh, has to kind of all mesh and synergize. And this is, I think when I read Klaus, what I think it's like, I think he sees it like, Fifty feet over the horizon, and it's like we can usher you through and look at all these problems we can point to that are existential as our justification for stealing all the power to usher us through it.
2: Yeah, there's another important book uh, from one of the global elites that's very parallel to Klaus's uh, fourth industrial revolution. It's Jacques Attali's book, Brief uh, History of the Future. He's sort of the called the Kissinger of France. And if you read Brief History of the Future, he, he gives basically a very similar pattern and parallel uh of, of the plans for 2030, 2040, and 2050. And he says, you know, by 2040, 2050, all education would basically be removed from anything regarding in regard to the public sphere. Education will occur, he thinks, through basically a little uh house-based AI bot that will bitch you around in your house and tell you what to do uh, i call it a bitch bot you're gonna have a little so imagine alexa like rolling around as like a, a a bitchy little uh educator or professor in your house uh and he says that children won't like go out and learn things everything will be done through this inner living this sort of uh, a.i alexa that's in your house it will do everything it will teach you it will tell you what exists what doesn't exist be a completely controlled one-way system you don't like again you don't access the free internet or anything like that um there won't be classes that you go to education will be just barked at you from this computer um and i think he says that's by 2040 and then he says by 2050 will be the full what he calls a a golem he calls it a golem that's his terminology of a hive mind where all human beings will be linked into uh, the hive mind, internet, uh, and he, and and the scariest part of that is if you look at Ray Kurzweil's chapter in Singularity on the um, what he sees uh, virtual reality being in the future. He says that he even admits this. He's like, it'll it'll be so great, like James said at the beginning, where uh, yeah, you'll you'll be able to have these experiences of what it would be like to be, you know, Tom Brady experiencing a touchdown or whatever. Uh, but there's also the, the 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 danger he says of a centralized government authority being able to come between you and your experience of the external world to put into you experiences. So there's a there's a two way thing to this Palantir stone, right? If you know about Lord of the Rings and the, when, when Pippin looks at, you know, Sauron and Sauron looks back at Pippin, right? And so the same way, uh, even Kurtzwell says that the system has the ability to not just um, let you see things, but it will put things into you and it can come between you and your uh, field of vision. I mean, so it, it's it's an amazingly sort of dystopian admission that, that Kurzweil has in that chapter. But if you put that parallel with what uh, Atali says in the later chapters, which by the way, he he uses the same um, sort of structure of uh, three revolutions and then the fourth revolution like Klaus does in that book. And then uh, towards the later chapters before the Borg chapter, he says that, quote, the transhumanists are the vanguard, the vanguard of today's revolution. And he says that it's basically just continuing the revolution from centuries back where the new revolutionaries, and if you wanna be a real revolutionary says, you will be a transhumanist. And he says that one thing that, uh, he wrote that book in 2005 or six. So he, he was writing, you know, uh, what, 15, 17 years ago. He says that uh, first first of all, he says what will happen is the revolution in um, portable technology. So he's writing again, when flip phones, everybody had their little Verizon flip phone or whatever. And he's saying that this will evolve into, you know, your smartphone. And he says what the smartphone will do uh, along with the advances in computer devices, he says that he calls them nomadic devices. And what a nomadic device does is that it makes you rootless. So, you know, people get mad when you talk about rootless consumerism. Uh, but that's actually what least says the purpose of the devices are, is to make you rootless, to make you not uh, fixed in any uh, area or location. And he says that the jobs of the future, he talks about the, um, um, what's the term that everybody uses now for the 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 side gig economy or or the uh yeah
1: yeah side hustle the the economy actually
2: yeah the gig economy He, he says the future will be a gig economy with when we have the nomadic devices so he was accurate in that prediction and he says then it'll transition into the technology being in you right which is exactly what klaus says right he says that we'll move from the devices to the devices being inside of you it to change you so it'll go from that to that phase and then that goes to the full-on uh borg hive mine as at least says by 2050 so um and he also says by the way the full-on straight up world government will be in fully in place by 2050 he says 20 they he says 2040 is an important date for you know really getting it kicked off but 2050 is when the goal is to have the straight up hardcore 100 you know thx 1138 dystopias by 2050 but Um, So uh, when we know where they want to go as the end goal, you know, the 2040 2050 end goal plan here of the straight up, literally like everything you see in the dystopian stories and movies, My, my wife and I, we just finished doing a series of podcasts where we went through chronologically, at least according to the stories uh, each of the dystopian movies right I mean we, we did we, we found as many as we could I don't know if we found every dystopian movie but we did pretty much all of them in a, in a chronological sequence according to the to the movies themselves I don't know if you saw that meme but there's a meme that kind of dates all the dystopian movies and so we got all the way up until like the 2500s and then we got up into like the year 800,000 with HG Wells's time machine but the funny thing is that like every one of the worst elements of the dystopian movies and science fiction stories is part of their plan for 2040, 2050. So, you know, one thing I've highlighted is the, that fiction tells us a lot too, just as much as the fact the facts, the so-called facts do, because I think the elite know that um, a lot more people are going to be exposed to the propaganda via fiction than they would be through these boring Klaus books. Right. So people will much more readily, uh, you know, consume HG Wells and Jules Verne and all these people before they would, Spielberg before they would uh, consume Klaus's boring books, but the reality is that if you look at what they say about 2040 to 2050, um, it's it's straight up dystopia. I mean, it's it's everything James is talking about. when he said nightmare. I mean, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, the but you won't know it's a nightmare, and you'll be happy. So, um, <laughs> well, there'll be like a, there'll be like a button that you know, like like uh, I'm feeling bad. I'll push my pleasure button, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> you push your dopamine button like the rat. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, it's interesting, you know, to thread this back into the, you know, the, to the boring literature, Marcuse actually discusses the, the role of art uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. In fact, all of the Frankfurt School critical, critical Marxists yeah. discuss the role of art and aesthetics a lot. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in his essay on Liberation from 69, the first chapter is four chapters. The first chapter is titled uh, a Biological Foundation for Socialism, and the second chapter is titled A New Sensibility. The first few times I read this essay. It's called an essay. It's like 150 pages in book form. So it's fairly long, you know, 40, 50,000 words, but the second chapter, like really, it just kind of lost me. I had no idea what he was talking about because it's all this stuff about art and aesthetics and the new aesthetics. And this, this, he says, will usher in a new sensibility and a new rationality and a new reality as a matter of fact. But this is kind of what you're, what you're getting at. And that's the point that he's making is that this has to be portrayed through an aesthetic sense that you have to give people an image through the art, through the, the the, the science fiction and dystopian uh, fiction aspects are really kind of huge pictures that lurch, People in the direction of believing these things are possible, or even possibly accepting them. Uh, I, I, you know, spend a lot of time looking at this. You know, if you look at Soviet realism, it had its own its own purposes too, right? It's very inspiring in a sense. Uh, you look at the Maoist art and it's it, the Chinese art, and it's got this very you know positive, we're all going there together sort of feeling to it that we all now associate with ickiness but it doesn't look icky when you see it and then the intersectional art of our time in our era is this weird faceless thing the identity is visible through a clothing or through hairstyle the skin color is visible but nobody has a face in any of their art and what you can kind of see is this what's that communicating is this people are just avatars of identities? And that these identities are the things, the intersectionality is ultimately the gigantic dialectic of identity turned inward. It's turned back on itself. Feminism has to be racial and r- race has to be feminist. And so the, the dialectical opposition between feminism and race uh, activism has to turn in on itself. You can tell they actually, in fact, they say that it, it, in the book, Critical Race Theory and in Introduction, they describe this phenomenon. And then they end the paragraph, that's Delgado and Stefancic are the authors. They end the paragraph with, and so the dialectic progresses, like not even trying to disguise what their their mentality is. Um, but we're looking at this kind of faceless art and this kind of, you know, techno futurist um, uh, fiction. And you kind can, can start putting together, you know, a vibe. But the, this idea that art and aesthetics and, and fiction and storytelling and narrative is all what's going to really drive this at the level of the public is really key. And this is where I think you start looking at things like the metaverse are, of course, this is backfiring spectacularly so far, but um, the metaverse is going to, you have to think of it in terms of a massive storytelling engine uh, in a very immersive environment. And it'll be this ability to um, allow people to envision alternative alternative lives, just like in a sense, the trans phenomenon that we see with individuals, mm-hmm. you could actually make a cohesive, coherent case. I don't believe this BS case that you know, Call of Duty makes kids violent. In fact, I think that there's a, a significant amount of evidence that that suggests, in fact, that it allows people to channel the violent impulse without acting it out in reality. Just like sports allow people to enact a tribal impulse without getting full-blown tribal and chucking a spear into somebody else's face, although they do occasionally clock each other, you know, or, or go full hooligan. But <laughs> When you look at the video game, one of the one of the things that worried me a lot watching the you know what would be the older or the sorry the the youngest millennials and the oldest Gen Z as it would be the mid twenties people in their twenties right now was the kind of video games that they got into very significantly were character building games. You'd spend like four hours before you even start playing the game, like changing the size of your character's nose or boobs or feet or whatever else, like making your character, putting tattoos, like changing their race, their hairstyle, 450 hairstyles to choose from. And then there's this sort of like avatar life where you get, you become this extension of this character that you build. And you live by proxy, whether it's in World of Warcraft, whether it's in one of these Final Fantasy type games or whatever, but whether it's, you know, your cartoon bitmoji character on on Snapchat, whether it's your your cartoon character you put up as your person on Twitter, as your, as your identity on Twitter, this, there's this ability when you get into this digital space to create a false identity and then to start identifying with your false identity, but most importantly, not with the false identity itself, but with the ability to change your identity at will. You can be as I played World of Warcraft when I was uh, in my I was in grad school a little bit for a few years, so I realized what a monumental waste of time it is. Um, I actually sat there realizing playing the game, and I realized, wow, I put a lot of time into making this this proxy of myself awesome when I could be making myself better instead. And literally, the entire enchantment to the game evaporated in half an hour. I've never played a video game since. I can't motivate myself to play one once I had that, that insight. But I started off playing like some skeleton thing. And then I played some, uh, you know, uh, some human woman character that threw fireballs. And then I played some, you know, different, these different things. And like, oh, I'm a troll now. And now I'm a, now I'm a, a human mage. And now I'm, a you know, dark skeleton conjurer or warlock or whatever they called it. And it's like this ability to just change your identity and be a totally different thing. It's fun and pretend. And if you can keep the pretend there, but you start looking at what that does to the psychology of somebody who's say prepubescent and then entering that transitional phase of puberty in their in in their bodies. They don't know how to deal with it. And the school telling them, well, if you feel awkward about your first period, that probably means that you're trans. And you know, let's socially transition you or whatever. It, 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 and they've already had kind of built into the architecture the idea they can change who they are at a fundamental level. Now you hold out the carrot of the metaverse where you can change who you are literally. Every day, t- every day you could go in there as a different entity, living a different life. You could be, you know, a mobster today, you could be a, you know, a party boy tomorrow. You could be a scholar the next day, a professor. I don't know how many people that I have argued with in my life on twitter.com who (laughs) pose as say a college professor who are actually some 15-year-old wasting my time. But this is something that becomes like part of this semi-digital world that your identity, in a sense, is up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And this feeds into that, you know, fiction writing. If you start to, like these video games are, in a sense, narrative arcs. They're a form of art that enables the acceptance of that view. It's not just going to be films. It's not just going to be books, but there's this understanding that you move this ball with the masses through art, through um, literature, Mm -hmm. and you find that explicitly explained in the theorists, the boring theorists that nobody reads. They're like, hey, by the way, we need our art. We need to have our aesthetic. We need to use that aesthetic to inspire a new sensibility, a new vision for what it means to be man. And right. then people will live up to that new sensibility as they create it and make it become real. And you know, you, again, you come back to the metaverse, I, I know that was a little discombobulated, but I'm trying to figure out how to tie in the idea of video game as art and identity creation as a stepping stone to that transhumanist project, to the belief, the fundamental belief that no, you are completely able to be remade. And if we tie it back to the Gnostic idea that there's this kind of primordial superhuman that you can escape from the mundane and, and and achieve. If we wanted to do it in, in the Hermetic tradition, there is of course the Hermetic belief, religion, the alchemy religion, is that God created the world by shattering Himself into an infinite number of shards, divine shards trapped within the mundane, and so God has forgotten that He is God, and human activity, the alchemical relationships in that man does as a special kind of being, uh, free the divine shards from the mundane so that they can recollect together, and God can recollect who he is and actualize with the whole world being shattered and open and freed of its mundane uh, confines, and then the the divine shards released. Lead is a base metal because the divine shard of gold is trapped within it, but if you can crack it open through the magical process, the, the seeds of gold will come out, they'll gather together, and the base metal will be transformed into the divine metal. Death is the, the reality of mundane life, but if you can drink the right mercury poison as an elixir, then you can shatter open the, the mortal coil and release the, the eternal life that the, the elixir provides, yada, 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 just repeated at infinitum. And that's what Marcuse writes later in this same essay about the new sensibility is that whenever you do this and you engage in the process of negative critique, he says negative critique necessarily takes on a positive character because it enables the ideal society that's contained within the present society to come out to come free. And you can see that this is a gigantic weirdo whether you know you want to tie it into Satan or whatever is up to you, up to your own you know discretion but the, the this is a weirdo mystery religion being used to try to remake the world and to get people to sign on to it without even knowing they believe that religion
0: yeah.
1: uh, that remaking yourself through your avatar life, on the computer, it teaches you something about how the world works. I mean, I'm one of these weird people that has one Twitter account. People often accuse me of having burners. I literally have one Twitter account. I only ever run one Twitter account. Um, I tried to make a second one for a a project that I had that's totally separate aspect of my life one time. And I couldn't even, I was like, I, I I can't deal with this crap. But I think that's because I was born in the analog world and I just don't think that way. Um, but I, I, I fear for what this, this other dimension of aesthetics enables in terms of changing the minds of, of undermining the, the, the real world sensibility of human beings. So that, like you said, you can by 2040 or whatever, have Rosie from the Jetsons in a professor jacket yelling at you, following you around your house and telling you without your windows ever opening what the world outside looks like it's kind of very like, uh, I don't know, it's the most dystopian thing I can actually imagine, you know, and maybe your windows are actually screens that show you the lie when you <laughs> turn them on. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a frightening prospect. I've seen advertisements for airplanes that are more fuel efficient that don't have windows, but instead have screens where the windows would go. So you don't feel claustrophobic. And you're literally, if you look at your window, you're looking at a movie of what it tells you is outside. Um wow. So, you know, these things, these, these things frighten me in terms of where it's going a lot. I, I, a lot of times people will talk to me and they say, well, where is this going? Where's this going? And it's like, you, you're not going to believe me if I tell you, even if I show you the sources that say, you know, this is the map that we envision for the future by serious people, by absolutely serious people. There's a really
2: good uh, movie. There's a movie that came out uh, around 2012, 2010, somewhere in there. I don't remember the director's name, but it's called The Congress and it has uh, Robin Wright in it, and it's kind of an independent sci-fi film and it's about the metaverse and it's, it was way ahead of its time and the, the basic plot, I'm not going to spoil it, but the basic plot is that the actress Robin Wright in a sort of breaking the fourth wall goes to the Hollywood studios and they scan her whole body to create an avatar of her and a couple other stars. I think they, did, they do it to Tom uh, Cruise, to Madonna. And the idea is that when they die, the studios still have the right to use their image in their body or whatnot. And so uh, then it fast forwards, I think 20 years in the future. And uh, in the future, people no longer are going to movies or doing anything. Everyone just sort of wears these Oculus rift, sort of goggles, metaverse goggles walking around. And they're all like wearing tattered rags. And basically it looks like a bunch of fentanyl zombies, but everybody's got the goggles. And nobody knows anybody in the real world because they they don't care about their, you know, real existence or their bodies. But but everybody knows in the future, everybody's just kind of wild, anything goes avatar. So, you know, there's Tom Cruise there, there's dragons there, Pokemon's, And it's a really um, well done uh, indie sci-fi movie that that gets at the dangers of what James is talking about with what they want to do with metaverse. And we've done several podcasts uh, lately about metaverse because... I think it ties into uh multiverse as well. And the idea that you can, what happens if we train these younger generations to think that there's no such thing as reality, but that reality can be whatever you want it to be. And what better vehicle for that than metaverse and living in this uh, virtual realm and whatnot, uh, because, I see it as an attack on reality. It's an attack on metaphysics, Uh, shameless plug, my new book, I've got a couple chapters where I deal with metaphysics and the golem and the metaverse um, as an attack on reality to get people into the mode of thinking that not only is reality subjective, you can actually create it, you can make it to be what you want it to be. Um, It's a kind of solipsism that is a, is a, a, it, it, it lures people in because of that promise like in Genesis three of the ability to be your own God. I mean, what better example of being your own God than the idea that I can define myself. I can be whatever I want to be. I can create a whole world. I can live and immerse myself in that world, but it's all an illusion. It's all a copy. It's all a mimetic uh, trick that I think um, is just for enslavement. It's just to keep us uh, uh, out of reality. As James said, with the analogy to world of Warcraft, I, I never played world of Warcraft, but I have my own, you know, experiences with plenty of, uh rpg games where i sunk you know countless hours into final fantasy and there was a certain point like james said where i I started thinking like well like why am i i put all this time and effort into this and i could have been reading i could have been doing other activities that would actually make my real life better and there's just sort of this you know realization period i think when you when you sort of grow up you get more mature you realize that um time is valuable Why, why would i waste my time on these these uh things which aren't in themselves wrong like you said there's nothing wrong with uh, you know, black ops and like this, but but the the games that are created. Um, I've even seen interviews with some um, pretty prominent uh, Silicon Valley people and game designers who talk about the dopamine factor involved in rewards and games. Uh, so look up some of the. I think it was a TED Talk done on uh, gamification of society. Uh, it's a really important talk because you've got some of these big tech guys saying we designed the um, the thumbs up and the you know the little. Uh, unlocking a new achievement within the games he says that's all designed because they know that the dopamine uh, receptors in your head, you see that as your mind interprets that as something that you really did, even though it's just a you know a fictional thing on the screen. the chemical response in your mind is as if you really did discover a pot of gold underneath a tree, right uh, in the Final Fantasy or whatever, right so, they know that, and so the, there's a, uh, an addictive quality. Is what I'm trying to say to this, which they know about in the same Silicon Valley people who talked, you know, four or five years ago about how they designed um, the never ending scrolling feed, right? To addict you to, to, to that process. And if you notice, it's very, uh, if you think about it, it's discombobulating because the, the tweet or the, the post that you put up, it disappears. Right. I mean, I remember I used to have these long debates on Facebook back in, you know, when Facebook was new, like 2005, six, somewhere in there, you know, people are just getting on Facebook and we would have these threads and these long debates and I would go on for hours and hours and hours. And then one day it hit me very much like what James was talking about with uh, with video games. It like, it hit me like, well, I, I don't I write a book. Like I'm, I'm stinking all of this time and effort into writing these posts that disappear. They'll never be read again. Yeah and i'm wasting my time when i could be putting all that into an actual book that was a big realization i had back at that time um, and, and and i think that we, you know you start to realize that and, and even at that time i mean it was it was you would hear these things like oh N-Q-Tel is who put money into facebook and it's a uh, you know cia front company that put this out and and you would hear that it's bad news but everybody still you know sunk their time into it and i think as we've gotten what how many 20 years now into these big tech companies and and they're Dominance uh, of the the social sphere. We're starting to realize that they're a big element in the dystopia that's coming, and if we don't wake up to that, then that's the problem, right? We're not we're going to be entrapped. We're going to be enslaved uh, by these megacorps, which are not free market corporations, in my view. In my view, they were seeded with government money. They were seeded with deep state money um, for this purpose. They're doing the very thing that they were intended to to, to do. And so every time I hear this uh, pseudo debate about, you know, well, they're a private company, you can't say that. No, they're not. They get uh, tax breaks, uh, the seed money, government money, that, that's all where they come from, right? So, uh, you know, these these useless debates, uh, uh, waste of time debates, pseudo debates are really just distractions from the fact that, I mean, these are, uh, you know, th- these are the eyes of That's what these companies are.
1: They really are. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the things that that, that ties right into that with the, the technology that we, ties into some of the other things we've been saying is the ability to create false relationships, right? So I just made the joke. I don't know how many fake people, 15-year-olds pretending to be college professors have argued with on Twitter. How many people, uh, I mean, let's just take this a step further. I, I have, uh, when my kids were in college, um, they were talking about how it was difficult to make friends. And I thought that that was really strange because I, you know, when I went to college, it was like, it was like, um, you know, Jed Clampett shooting in the ground and oil squirting out of making friends. It's like you get thrown in this new environment. It's just friends everywhere. You know, one day you're a millionaire, like everybody's in this new environment together you're all kind of going through it together nobody knows what to do so you're out in the square you're out in the parking lot you're sitting in the common room in the dorm just running your mouths and everybody like you make friends faster than than you any other time even more than high school faster than any other time in life it's just this phenomenal experience i'm talking to my kids about it and they're like no it's not how that works Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, we go to class and then we all have our friends on our phone. So we all go back to our rooms as quickly as possible, interact with our friends on our phone. And we don't want to interact with new people because we have our friends on our phone. And then you take that one step further and it's like, you interact with people you think are your friends, but maybe they're CIA agents or something on your phone. But that's fake because they're AI chatbots. You know, you're, you're interacting with people that aren't even people possibly sometimes, which could become all the time if the, the device gathered enough data to build a convincing AI uh, simulation of me, for example, from my say copious amount of Twitter use, then um, somebody could be chatting with a completely AI creation of me posing as me that looks like me, that's passable, that passes the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, the Turing test of me They, there could be like a million AI mes out there talking to people, and they think they're talking to me. And I mean, you know, we might be just a few years from you talk about creating your own world, but your world is created with a bunch of friends who are not real, but -hmm. your brain doesn't know that they're not real. And then what are what are you at that point? You know, what are you doing? You are you're engaging in a complete i mean you're in the matrix in some sense but it's worse because the the other things you're interacting with don't even exist they're they're literally algorithmic fixtures that are designed to cater to you like these some of these ai digital friends they already have that they're they're giving to teenagers to help them if they're upset or anxious or depressed or whatever are trying to figure out at the current level of technology within the app, like exactly how to tap the mood of this person to become exactly the thing that they need. Then you look over at Japan and you have people falling in love with dolls and algorithms and other things and wanting to marry them. And it's like, wait a minute, we, as you said, this becomes a complete attack on reality, complete divorce from reality, a complete avenue to create the rootless person. And the rootless person is at that point imminently propagandizable Imminently marketable, uh, the person in some sense themselves becomes an unwitting commodity that can be packaged up, and it is being packaged up and sold uh, from these megacorps one to another. Whereas what you're doing is, gener- I don't know how this, uh, I haven't figured this part out yet, but you hear these kind of elites say things like that, that data is the new gold. Um, what you are is you are a data generating machine for the algorithms that provide the complete social control mechanism. I don't know how that is a sustainable economy in any amount of long run, but um, it's very frightening because you could literally have people who have zero friends in reality, zero ties back to reality, zero checks. They have only their digital friends that aren't even real friends. They're getting fed digital education. That's a lie, uh, et cetera. They have no contact to the real world. And then now I'll imagine, like, let's say that's totally organic and totally fun and everything's great. La la la. And then somebody, you know, decides that it's time to have an active shooter or whatever. And they flip the switch and all their friends start kind of their fake, not real friends. They're not real people. Start propagandizing them in that direction, or it's time to support dear leader. So they propagandizing him in that direction, or, you know, uh, Google's turn to make megabucks comes up or whatever. So Google develops some product and all your fake friends are like, oh, wow, this is the thing we need. And they get propagandized into So everybody gets propagandized into making, you know, a trillion dollars for Google that year or whatever the, whatever the, the, the evil desire might be, whether it's profit driven, whether it's control driven, whether it's, I mean, it's really a frightening environment when you start severing those ties to reality. Um because you 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 have absolutely no grounding at that point. You have absolutely no check. In some sense, the train has has had the it's it's rolling down the hill and they 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 are literally dismantling the brake. Um and that thing can go wherever they bend the track to go. Um and that's where you kind of got you gotta get really kind of concerned. And I, I think that what we've tapped upon something very important here with video games, with endless chat threads. On Facebook, that there are better things to be doing with your time. That reality is what happens when you're offline, first of all, is a very fundamental observation. And that if you don't have your connection to reality, then you are a manipulable pawn in somebody else's program. And when we say, say program with a pun built right into it, like literally a program. Yeah. Um, and so you definitely should have this strong desire to. You're not necessarily unplug, but to use the device rather than having the device use you. I just, when you were describing what you were, what you were talking about, I just, it just hit me like so clearly and remembering talking to my kids and then saying, yeah, that's not what college is like anymore. We don't make friends anymore. We, you don't go to college and make friends. We don't meet each other. And they're all depressed because nobody's getting married. Nobody's got relationships. Nobody has a boyfriend. Instead they have like, Pardon, I almost sweared uh, or swore. I I fucking did do it. You know, fake relationships through OnlyFans or or dating apps or whatever that they maybe never meet in reality. maybe thank God, because who knows if they're a catfish or who knows what. But that poses as the actual relationship. And again, you have your Japanese people, you look at them falling in love with their algorithm. There's the end of another biological line of humanity uh without firing a shot or ushering anybody into a gas chamber or any of the nasty things that they had to do at the beginning of kind of industrial warfare um it's a it's a very con- not to say that they necessarily have an agenda to do that but the fact that they could use it to the to achieve that agenda very easily mm-hmm. i mean i've even seen that they have like digital babies like yeah. you remember those digital pets you can have like yeah. a digital kid now yeah yep. it's like what the
2: hell is that
0: <laughs> brain well, remember that uh
2: spike jones's movie her came out in 2013 yep. where joaquin phoenix falls in love with his yep. algorithm right or the ios and it's the voice yep. of uh you know scarlett johansson and at the end the algorithm, the, the ios breaks up with him <laughs> so yeah. he's he's sitting there on the roof of a building in the dystopia and he looks over at amy adams and he's like oh i guess i should have been dating you the whole time right i mean like you were here in front of me right. the whole time and I I remember I wrote wrote a review of that when it came out at the time, and I was talking about how, you know, they were already planning and discussing at that time DARPA and other other companies that, in the future, people would be uh, literally having dating relationships with their algorithm. And I remember I put that article out, and people said it was crazy. They were like, Oh, it's just, just, it's just a movie dummy. Oh, you're an idiot. And then here we are. And we're, we're on the verge of, of now that, that movie came out what nine years ago. So it's almost yep. been 10 years. We're, we're, we're on the verge of where they're saying that this is what's coming and they're actually beginning to to uh, promote this. So again, proving the thesis that, you know, anything that you find in the dystopian movies, they'll eventually try to push it because it's, it's a, it's basically a weaponized agenda that I think that, um, you know, whatever promotes uh, you, you not flourishing, you not going into the future, uh, they will push. So um, uh, I, I'm gonna have to go here in a second. Um, I'm not trying to be rude or anything. But it was a great conversation. I thought James's uh, points yeah. were all spot on. Um, agree with everything he said. Um, Courtney, I want to thank you for having me. And uh, again, if anybody wants to, you can get my books over at my website in the shop. Uh, don't buy them from Jeff Bezos, Please get them over at my website in the shop. You get signed copies if you get them from my uh, website. And I did do, um, relevant to today's discussion in my new book, Meta-Narratives, Essays on Philosophy and Symbolism. There's quite a few chapters that do deal with critiquing scientism, critiquing dialectics. I got a chapter on the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer Adorno, um, all those goons. I got... Um, chapters on Machiavelli and so I, I try to give a meta a return to metaphysics is the thesis of the book how do we get back to reality and uh you know the idea of the transcendent the idea of logic objective truth is really what the book is geared to do so you can get that over the site and um yeah all my other work is over there as well
0: awesome well and then I'll let uh, James hit through we, we've gotten that. What I loved about this is I had all these questions written, and as you guys went back and forth, you started to answer every one of my questions, so that was really awesome. Um, I do have several more, so you know, if at some point in the future you ever want to reconvene, yeah, you know, I'd love I to. Love I mean, it. I'm not
2: trying to be rude, uh, my, I've got to do something with my wife, but uh, I do appreciate you having me, and uh, yeah. again, I, I was really impressed with James's uh knowledge, I think he knows totally what he's talking about, and again, I'm really honored to be on with you guys, yeah, likewise, absolutely. Likewise. This well, thank you
0: so much. I thought it would be awesome. And James, of course, uh, please tell everybody where they can find you and we can stay on for a little bit. If you want to add anything else and let, uh, I'm going to have to run
1: shortly too, but yep. um, I will say, you know, you can find me, my, my platform is new discourses is at new at the website and go see, I basically communicate this literature to people there. That's what I do. I, I read their literature, tell you what it says. Sometimes I just read it to you because I don't think you'll believe me unless I actually read it to you. Um, and then uh, that has all the social media is at New Discourses. My own is at Conceptual James. Um, you're welcome. I'm active on Twitter. Everything else mirrors my Twitter. It's just a simulation of my Twitter that some people help me make. Uh, so you can you can go interact with the avatar of me at Twitter that I am. Uh, so far as I know, you know, there's the, I, then only the real deal. They won't verify me. So, you know, I'm for, for real, for real. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at Conceptual James at Twitter at New Discourses and New Discourses.com or you can find the things.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for being here and making my little vision from a year ago come to reality. So this was really, really awesome. And I would love to do it again. So thank you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, let's do sure. it again. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah.